What's up my fellow poker enthusiasts, it's Renee aka The Wacko here and together with my co-host Adam Carmichael we present to you the Mechanics of Poker podcast. In this podcast we deconstruct high stakes poker players figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they had to develop to surpass them. Over the years, me and Adam have gained a lot of experience in both reaching high-stakes poker ourselves and teaching other players to do the same. We have bundled all this knowledge together in our coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker, which is the most complete poker coaching product on the market. If you want to have a chance to work with me and Adam so you can get unstuck and make more progress in your poker career, go over to mechanicsofpoker.com to apply. But without further ado, let's learn from another high stakes player's journey in today's episode. Welcome back to another episode here on the Mechanics of Poker podcast. We just got done doing the launch of our Mechanics of Poker 2.0 coaching program. And I wanted to thank all the applicants for showing interest in joining we handed out all spots we had available and it's been great to hear the positive words that are coming our way while they started going through the program and how some inc- integrated themselves in the community already. In case you missed out, we are currently not taking on any new members for the program and don't have any plans yet for when we reopen. Just continue following the pod and our socials or leave your email on our site mechanicsofpoker.com. That way you won't miss out when we do. All right. As for our guest today, he's been playing poker for 20 years already. So we're going back to the Chris Moneymaker Boom era. However, for the first 10 years of his poker career, he struggled a lot and he found himself broke. Not sure if he wanted to continue pursuing a professional poker career. I'm talking about high six poker player and Solve for Y founder Matt Berkey. He will share with us how he got himself stuck a small 5 million playing in Ivy's room. Live poker adjustments online players should make and how to adapt and thrive for as long as he has in the poker community. All right. Very excited to have him on. What are you particularly curious about for today's guest, Adam? Yeah, I'm excited to hear how he's been able to evolve his game over 20 years. If you think how many evolutions poker has had over that time, from the Moneymaker Boom era to Solvers coming out, Black Friday, to be around and thriving through all of that is impressive. So there's going to be a lot of lessons, a lot of success habits he's had to build through that there's gonna be a lot of turmoil no doubt that he's had to go through to still be around today as yeah really looking forward to digging into all the stories and hopefully getting some life lessons and success traits that you guys as the audience can listen to and apply to your careers yeah i'm sure it will be uh, very very educational all right but before we start i would like to give a big shout out to our sponsor which is gto wizard GTO Wizard has made studying poker accessible for everyone and in my opinion is one of the best places to go if you're serious about improving your poker game. Next to having access to all GTO solutions for every spot and having the ability to upload your hands and let Wizard find it for leaks, you get access to a weekly coaching webinar in which various coaches, including myself, educate you on the most important spots to start crushing the game, okay? Go over to gtowizard.com slash mechanics to get started and you will get 10% off on your first month. That is gtowizard.com slash mechanics. But for now, without further ado, let's get 
into today's episode with Matt Berkey. All right, here he is, Mr. Berkey. Thank you for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. Uh, I wanted to start off this conversation pre-poker. You studied and got a degree in computer science. However, the, the scores you got in that degree were not worth much as you spent all of your time pursuing a professional baseball career. Now, being competitive in sports or games um, before poker has become a common trend on this podcast, many of the guys we spoke to had a history in either sports or often computer games is a very common one as well. I don't know if you if you have any experience in that as well, but I'm very curious to hear about when and where that competitive drive originated from to pursue baseball as like a professional career instead of something, you know, you just do with your buddies in your spare time. Yeah, I think that uh, just the era that I grew up in, uh, coming from a very small steel mill town, it wasn't the the scientists and the doctors and the lawyers that were really like put on a pedestal. It was the athletes, the musicians, you know, the the people who were uh, big names in pop culture. Um, I think that represented a path out, kind of. Uh, you know, we were a very small, podunk town that had one steel mill, and that was the only reason people lived there. So I think I naturally gravitated towards sports. Um, and again, it was a kind of a byproduct of my peer group, too. When you grow up with the same 25 kids from the time that you're five until you go to college, uh, it's it's just kind of natural that sports is the common language that you all speak. So when it comes to like academic endeavors, uh, even brain sports like chess, that was like too, too niche, right? It was too outside the populace, uh, to really take any risks on. And that, uh, accompanied by the fact that, uh, I kind of grew up in a, a way where the, the first six or seven years that I was going to school, I wasn't very popular. I didn't have a lot of friends. And I realized that, uh, athletics and staying active was just a way to become uh, kind of a part of a group. Mm, so it was like the 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 draw towards a community that drew towards baseball. I guess also a sense of status, right? Or at least from like all, if I see like high school movies, for example, in America, it's always, you know, you yeah. have like the jocks, the guys who play sports, those are the, those are the guys, right? Not necessarily yeah. the, the quote, quote, nerds. Yeah. And, you know, it was one of those things where it's uh, my dad was very intelligent uh, in spite of like all of his shortcomings. Um, you know, he was initially a chemical uh, engineer and then went on later to be a computer scientist. Uh, but he was like everything I didn't want to be. Right. Like he he was a nerd who on top of that had like anger issues and like had all these shortcomings that uh, I didn't really idolize. What I idolized was. Uh, the Steelers who showed up every Sunday, the the Pirates who were there day in and day out, the Barry Bonds of the world. Uh, so I wanted to be something bigger. Like when you're a kid, you only recognize uh, what's kind of being projected as important to you as being important. And it wasn't it wasn't politicians or scientists or or people really changing the world that was kind of thrust upon me as like these are the important people that you should look up to. It was athletes, and uh, on top of that. Uh, I think that um, I just aspired to to more than like, I didn't know what I wanted to do when it came to using my brain, but it was abundantly clear that I had a love for sports, specifically baseball. Uh, it was something that I'd done since I was a toddler and I kind of took naturally to it. So it was very easy for me to just be all in from like the age of seven on. 
I don't really know much about baseball, but I know most sports go quite deep in terms of strategically as well. Obviously, poker is a very strategic game. Was it the strategic aspect that attracted you to baseball as well? Or was it purely the athleticism? I don't think so at a young age. Um, and it's ironic because of all the sports, baseball is probably the most data-driven. Um, but uh, I think that th there was definitely a turning point between like Little League and high school ball where it just stops being something that you're doing for fun and you stop viewing it through the lens of a child like uh view vantage point where you kind of just show up and do what you're supposed to do and like hope for good results right like by the time you're a teenager and you're playing competitively you stop hoping for good results and you start analyzing you start wondering like what when, when should i be looking for a curveball versus a fastball and like how can i increase my batting average uh by you know, picking up on pitches that uh, or, or patterns that my opposition may fall into. So I think like by the time I was a teen, I started to delve into the strategy side of things. And certainly by the time I was in college, uh, I, I way outperformed my talent when it came to being a leader, when it came to being a captain, uh, all of these things. It was all a byproduct of my work ethic, which was largely born out of the fact that I was just a cerebral player. So uh, I wasn't the most athletic. I wasn't the most talented by any stretch, but I knew exactly what to do in every single moment because I was studying the game so deeply. Uh, that makes sense. Did you notice any any change in how you experienced or maybe the joy in the game when you went from like a kid playing baseball to like more of a teenager? Like you said, you had a more improvement-driven mindset. Did that change your experience towards the game in any sort of way? Uh, yeah, I think initially, um, and specifically in other sports that I wasn't taking as seriously. So I played club volleyball uh, through college as well. And then I would play like pickup football and uh, I was in a roller hockey league as well. And once I started taking baseball seriously, I noticed that I couldn't really approach any other sport with this just show up and see what happens kind of mentality. So I kind of lost the love for some of the other ones because I knew my cap, right? It just became so apparent. Uh, what my limitations were and how abundantly capped I would be, especially if I was dedicating all my time to this other arena, which made me a lot less interested. And that, that kind of takes the romanticism out of it, which, you know, when you're young, especially as a teen, everything's about, or at least for me anyway, like everything was about the romantic ending, the, the Hollywood script where, you know, you get to be the hero or you get the girl or whatever the case may be. And I always, in my mind, like fascinated those story arcs where uh, I'm the main character. And whenever you start to lose love a little bit for these other arenas that used to be so much fun, um, it, it's kind of a sobering moment. You you kind of become an adult very quickly. Yeah, when rationality kicks in and you see how success works in, for example, baseball, you're like, ah, oh, I'm a person who likes things when he's good at things. Oh, I don't have the time to put in for right. these other sports, I can imagine that then the joy for the other sports kind of uh, disappear a little bit. Is that actually something that you still have up until today? Like you only have a certain amount of time for a certain sport or you, do you now see it purely as leisure? Uh, it's so much worse now. Uh, I mean, it, it, the, the compounding interest of it all is, is so terrible because uh, especially like having spent 20 years in poker now, right? It's like I've dedicated effectively half of my life to a game to ex that I'm trying to excel at, it's really hard to go be me mediocre at anything else, right? Because you know that you're cutting out study time to do that or you're cutting out 
actual uh, time at the felt to do that. So I recently picked up pickleball, which I absolutely love. And it's one of those games where, um, of course, like having certain physical attributes will, will rise you to the top faster. And, um, you know, being predisposed to certain talent will allow you to get to the top, but it's largely uncapped. It's, it's a brand new sport. And if you meet like some average requirements, your ceiling is pretty much unlimited. And I immediately fell in love with that. But as I've spent like a year and a half kind of growing up with the same group and seeing how much faster they're accelerating through because they can dedicate more time or they're just more naturally predisposed to talent. Uh, I, I get so frustrated where it's just like, I even going out to play for fun now is like a waste of time. I should just be doing something better with my life. Yeah, that, uh, that definitely sounds familiar. I, 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 I do think I've managed to give it a place that I say, okay, this is, you know, there's other things, for example, when I go out and play football, there's also a certain social aspect, like, oh, you know, it's mm -hmm. a, it's a five aside. We have a little chat, you know, I'm doing some exercise. I'm outside. I, I, I try to view it now from those positives. Obviously, sometimes there's a disconnect between what my brain thinks and what my feet actually do, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that can yeah. be quite frustrating. So I think I kind of learned to give it a place. Yeah, I wish I could. Uh, I stopped playing video games in college for this exact reason, right? Because when it came to, should I spend a couple hours playing video games or should I spend a couple hours playing online poker? Well, they're both video games in my mind and one of them's paying me money. Uh, and I hate to break things down to that level because I just don't care that much about bottom line or, or maximizing my time that way. But it's really hard to justify, uh, you know, setting aside 30 hours to beat a video game when you could otherwise be earning maybe 200 bucks an hour. Yeah, that, that I also, I played a lot of video games and when I started to play online poker, I kind of scrapped those out completely. Also because like, am I really in my free time gonna still sit behind my computer and play, and right. play video games? But indeed also right. what you said, it's, it's no longer, I think also it's no longer in line with your objectives, right? Especially when you're trying to become a very good poker player. Uh, you know, it's like, okay, your values kind of change. You don't anymore play that purely for fun. And you find other things that give you enjoyment. You already get like the the self-development part out of poker that you maybe used to get out of gaming, getting good at something. You have the strategic aspect. And then to relax and have fun, I guess you choose other activities that are not behind the computer. Yeah, I think I think you really hit the nail on the head with the self-development part. Um, maybe something that we don't really recognize too often without a lot of hindsight and uh, introspection is that uh, the majority of the things that we found to be rewarding or uh, entertaining or substantial to us in our youth were largely just things that were shaping our path moving forward. Like we, we're, we're just trying to carve out our interests. We have no idea who we are, what we are, what we want to pursue, what our purpose is, right? But once you start to solidify that a little bit and you start to have slightly a better understanding of what path you're on and what direction you're headed, you have to kind of trim the fat and a lot of that stuff falls by the wayside and you reminisce for it or you're, you're nostalgic for it, but it doesn't serve you anymore, right? Like you, you kind of nail it. You'll find other arenas to fulfill either your competitive side or uh, just sheer mindlessness or entertainment, whatever the case may be. But it doesn't have that same impact any longer because you're not this blank ball of clay. You're actually quite molded and you have kind of a purpose and direction. So you know, now all of a sudden when you're feeling those, those voidless hours where you're shutting your brain off, just watching a movie, it feels so empty because it's exactly what it is, right? It's literally just mindlessness. Whereas before you were, you were playing a video game and who knows, maybe you'll develop video games 20 years from now, right? Like at, at 19, you have no idea.
I definitely also actually think that playing video games, obviously it depends which games. Uh, it definitely, I, I would say it has some benefits uh, growing up because, you know, you teach certain skills. You, 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 I don't know exactly which skills, but I'm sure studies have been done that if you play certain games a lot when you're young, it probably has some benefits to, to your future capabilities, I assume. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Like dexterity, strategy, all those things. Uh, you're certainly tapping into necessary developmental things. Um, whether or not they're most efficient, that's a different debate, I guess. Yeah, and I guess at some point also how much time you spend in it. And that's, that's you know, time time taken from something else. So I don't know if that really balances each other out. Um, I was listening to your uh, Only Friends podcast over at Soul for Why. Um, and there was an interesting discussion about a tweet Ben CB put it out that you thought was heavily influenced by a survivorship bias. In there, mm -hmm. you mentioned how you gave everything for your baseball career. And as we all or all now know you didn't turn a professional baseball player, but you turned professional poker player. Um, you said that you were just never going to make it. Didn't really matter what you did as you were capped to a certain level because you did not possess the natural talent needed to make it to the top 1%. Now, listening to this, some questions came to my mind. First one being, when did you realize that this was actually the case in baseball? How did you feel about it and how did you handle it? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I think that the answer is kind of two parts. Uh, subconsciously, I probably knew for a very long time. Um, I think maybe I even like surprised myself along the way. Uh, you know, to kind of give you my my timeline, I didn't start at a small high school as a freshman, which would be expected of anybody who has the chance to make it professionally. But it's easy to just rationalize with yourself and say, I'm a late bloomer. Uh, I could show them. I just need to work harder. Then I went to college, and after my freshman year, I was cut from the team. Uh, and it was a Division three team, which is the lowest division that you can play. So I was forced to make a hard decision of, am I going to continue to pursue this, or am I going to quit and just accept that you know, this coach's read on me is correct and I'm not good enough? I chose the former. I transferred actually up to a Division two school, and I've never worked as hard as I worked those four years. I, I just absolutely busted my ass. I'm quite confident that I grinded harder and put in more work than probably a lot of people who actually made it to the professional ranks. Uh, and I could think I could say that pretty confidently because I know given the success that I have in poker, I haven't worked even one fifth as hard as I worked at baseball. And that's kind of why I think that there is this predisposition to talent, right? The guys who actually make it to the MLB, a lot of them would make it almost regardless uh, so long as they don't do anything to shoot themselves in the foot, right? They just have that level of talent. And as long as they, as long as they cultivate it in any capacity with any level of work and intelligence, they're very probable to make it. They're just the select few. They're the 1% of the 1%, right? They're destined to make it. And the ones that don't, usually have some like tragic story aligned to it, right? They either fell out of love with the game or they had some tragedy along the way, got injured, whatever. Um, and I view the same in poker. It's like, I worked hard in poker. Don't get me wrong. Like, uh, you know, when Ben talks about not spending your 20s in the club and, you know, putting in all the hours and things like that, that was me to a certain degree. I was putting in 2,000 hours a year. Now, granted, I didn't really come up. The era I came up was very different, right? You didn't just spend all your time online, combing through data, really honing in, right? It was it was very much a feeling process because there was no guides. We, we were carving the path. 
Um, and you just chased EV, whether that was a soft online game that you happened to stumble into on uh, a random Euro site that had a, a, a sports book attached to it, or it was the uh, casino down the road was running a big MTT. Like you, you literally just played it all. Anything that seemed like it was going to be a plus, opportunity, plus EV opportunity, you just fired. So I spent a lot of time in my poker path just chasing and, uh, you know, much like life, just, just trying to discover and figure things out, which doesn't really allow you to work hard. And it certainly doesn't allow you to work smart, right? Most of the work that you're putting in is just filtering out the noise and figuring out what the hell is worth anything. Now, of course, that doesn't resonate with anybody who's new to the game now because everything's so streamlined, right? You play 100,000 hands, you, you, you catalog that database, you now upload it to PT4 or Wizard or something like that, and you come through and you see the mistakes that you're making, you sort for them, you train them, you get better, you calibrate, you go execute again on another 100,000 hands, right? We didn't have that luxury. We were literally flying by the seat of our pants, operating in the absolute dark. And um, I think having done all of that and then moved into this new era where you can actually have a strategy, study deeply, calibrate your game and, and things of that nature, I recognize how much work it takes to get there. But I also recognize that like, by doing it blindly, I got fast-tracked in a way that nobody who starts now could ever understand, right? Like I was able to develop skills that um, kind of get hindered when you're fed the answers and and kind of led along uh, the, the path on its own. I'm only saying all of this to, to kind of paint the picture that we like to glorify working hard and we like to believe that life and poker are both meritocracies where the more effort you put in, the bigger the results are that you get out. But that's just simply not true. Both are variance-driven uh, arenas, right? And oftentimes people are just selected and maybe they're pre-selected or predisposed by some sort of talent, right? In poker, it's going to be intellect. It's going to be problem solving. It's going to be rationality. Um, these are going to be heavily favored for people who make it, right? And in baseball, it's going to be physical talents. It's going to be speed. It's going to be uh, hand-eye coordination, all of these things. If you lack in any of those arenas, sure, hard work can catch you up, but it's almost impossible for it to surpass people who has all of those things and are putting in any effort at all. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think the conclusion of the discussion that you guys had were that obviously you need to put in the work, but you know if you put in a lot of work, is and that's necessary in order to reach like your full potential. But the full potential that someone has, the cap that someone has, is driven by talent or a certain predisposition. Correct? Yeah, I, I think that that's largely what I wanted to get at. But also, uh, you know, I kind of wanted to start from a a common ground where I wanted to acknowledge that Ben's correct. We all agree that you have to work hard for success. I don't think anybody's trying to to um, you know reduce that down to oh whatever man if you just show up like good things will happen like nobody believes that to be true. What I was trying to point uh, uh, put a little bit more emphasis on is that it's easy for Ben to say this on the back end of a ten or fifteen year career where he's had success, right? He overlooks all of the advantages that he was afforded along the way that had nothing to do with his work ethic, right? It's easy to be a part of the German conglomerate that came up during the uh, the initial boom of high rollers 
where they had something figured out before everybody else. And now you have capital available to you. You have some of the sharpest minds available to you. You have some of the best top software available to you. It's like, of course you fucking worked hard. You had literally everything at your fingertips, right? Not everybody is that fortunate. So when I say it's survivorship bias, I'm talking about all those intangibles that we so easily gloss over because we put in thousands of hours of effort into something, right? Well, it's like you would have never put in that effort if you weren't afforded all these advantages to begin with. Like even just me being uh, a middle-class white guy in America, like that just already sets me ahead to put in more effort into things that have a high ceiling, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're, you know, a a lower-class Ethiopian, it's going to be really difficult to just like go out and pursue an engineering degree even if that's your talent, you know? Yeah, that makes actually a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, an interesting part on that, I think it was the Figar podcast that we did that he said the drive for people to play poker. He said that a lot of people from, I think it was them from, from Brazil were very driven financially because like you said, they're, they're basically their need for certainty and security is a little bit higher because where they came mm. from, right? It's harder for them. So they want to capitalize on this opportunity where he said like, for example, Northern Europeans, they play a bit more from like, oh, I want to be the best. And they, they care a bit right. less about the, the financial side of it just because, you know, I, I, in my opinion, for example, I'm born in the Netherlands. If you fuck up in the Netherlands, you fucked up pretty bad, man. You have so <laughs> many safety nets. You have so yeah. many safety nets, man. If, if you don't have money, the government will give you a house. The government will give you this. The government will give you that. Believe me, you have to do something really, really, really wrong in order to screw up in the Netherlands. Mm. But you guys are happy, right? Uh, yes, I, I guess so. I guess so. That, that's, that's every study that... I read. You guys are the happiest nation in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I guess so. I, I guess so. I mean, there's obviously, you know, for example, I've, I've lived four years in Brazil as well. And these people actually look happier to me on average than Dutch people. Or maybe, you know, they express it more, I guess. It really, I, I think they're a much more emotional culture, right? Yeah, they're more an emotional culture. And so I guess if you, with my eyes, it looks like they are happier because they're more expressive of their happiness than, for example, a right. Dutch person. A Dutch person, I guess, is more content. And that's, mm-hmm. I guess, shows less emotion than being happy or being angry because Brazilians, they, they just fluctuate a bit more, you know, they, they are very angry or they're very happy, whereas Dutch people are way more content. So if being content is the definition of the happiness in, in that, in that study, then yeah, I, I guess, well, that's, I guess that's, that's probably, yeah, that's probably a little bit of like the measurement, right? The fact that uh, you guys have the luxury to not really ride the highs and lows. Because with projecting uh, gratefulness and happiness, there's also suffering behind that, right? That's that's when you're kind of ping-ponging off both ends. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, there's just a lot of advantages to, to your region, too. I, I'm not super sharp on this stuff, but I do recall, like, reading this study recently. Um, and a lot of it just is born out of, like, uh, homogeny and uh, nationalism. Like, it's, it's very easy to get a small nation to kind of rally around, uh, let's all work for the greater good of each other right mm-hmm. um i don't think we've gotten to that point worldwide yet not even close no yeah i i, I agree I, I wanted to i wanted to touch on one one small point that you said i think you were placed out of the team in a division three uh yep. uh league yep why did you choose not to accept that fate so your coach was like berkey you're not even good enough to play division three some people would then say, okay, well, coach, thanks for pointing me out. I'll, I'll look at other things. But you choose to like give him the finger and say, oh, oh yeah. You know, it, it motivated you. 
that that shows a yeah. certain character trait. Where, where, where does that come from? Character trait's a good way of framing. I would have went with character flaw, but uh, <laughs> I, I okay. So it, it it has probably has its good sides and its downsides, yeah. right? Yeah, I, I am I am notoriously stubborn. Uh, I'm incredibly um, self motivated, and uh, I certainly have a very prideful streak throughout me. Um, I mean, I think it was a combination of things, right? Like I, I cried so hard when I found out I got cut because one, it was, it was actually shocking to me. I, I truly didn't see it coming. I thought I was like performing pretty well. Uh, and two, uh, you know, we, I, that whole story got brought up because I said subconsciously, I probably always knew that I was pretty limited. Um, I wasn't ready for that slap in the face, right? I wasn't ready for that to become the conscious. And, uh, I just always operated off the mindset. I come from poverty. I come from a small town. I come from kind of nothing. And I think it just instilled this like free roll mentality into me, like at my core, where in spite of all those things that were a bit of hurdles uh, throughout my life, uh, I was always heavily encouraged by those around me. Uh, whether they were blowing smoke up my ass or not, it, it didn't matter because it, it, it gave me an overinflated sense of self around certain things. Uh, like I truly believed I was intelligent, whether I was or wasn't. I truly believed um, I was going to be able to be a high achiever, whatever I put my mind to. And like as an adult now, I kind of realize that's that's bullshit, even if you're a genius who has all of the skills in the world, right? Like we don't have that level of control, really. Mm -hmm. um, but as a kid, it lit a fire under me. And honestly, as a young person, it's a far better mindset to have than uh, a nihilistic one where nothing matters and uh, you know, you're know you kind of just subjected to your own reality. Because if I had that, if I had that like uh, nihilistic point of view, I would have just, yeah, you're right. I would just shift it off of it. I would just said, okay, uh, that's the end to that. Uh, I'm going to get my education now and I'm probably going to become a computer programmer and, you know, maybe hate the next 20 years of my life. You mentioned like that unconsciously you new but i guess at that point you were not ready to accept it which i guess is also you strive so much towards being you know you already said like sports that was all the race so i guess your identity was so tied to being that sport person that you were not ready to that basically have your identity be taken away from you right yeah what what was different the second time around because at some point like i said you did came to the point in your professional career where you realized you were kept Maybe you already knew it, right? You already knew it maybe back then, but now you were ready to accept that fact. Well, how is that? What what changed? Honestly, I think it was just better opportunity because even now hearing you say that, like I realize my identity is still so tied there. Like I still set myself up as the athlete within the poker space kind of. Um, you know, I just made a bet with Landon that I can dunk a basketball in six months. I'm 40. I haven't dunked a basketball in 12 years. I'm only six foot tall. Like the fact I ever dunked a basketball is a borderline miracle in and of itself. So it's like for me to actually have a, an out loud, out loud conversation with myself that says, you've done it before, you can do it again. Like it's just mind over matter kind of thing. It's such a lie. Like it is, I, I'm maybe, and this is a generous maybe, I'm maybe 10 to 15% to do this. And it won't be due to a lack of effort. Like I will give my all, but you know, you just have to accept certain realities. I'm very bad at accepting the common realities of we get older we're gonna die we're gonna age out of things right like this is just very hard for my brain to conceptually understand 
Um, and honestly, if I didn't have poker to transition to, I don't know what would have happened because I still played baseball till I was 31. I only quit because of an injury. I tore my ACL. And at that point I was just doing so well in poker. Uh, I didn't have the time to kind of like necessarily like rehab myself, uh, in order to get back into baseball shape. I was just more concerned about getting back into sports shape, which I accomplished. Um, but I had a hard, hard, hard time letting go. I, I was still trying out for uh, professional teams into like my mid to late 20s. I think I was like 27 when I had my final tryout. Uh, I just like truly believed that I was right on the precipice. And uh, that that may have been true in my head because I probably was like somewhat close as in like, you know, the fringe 10% that would actually get a look. But I was I was miles miles away from the guy who would actually get the contract you know in hindsight uh, even in real time uh, you know i always knew that it was like a quote-unquote pipe dream right it was one of those things where i was just trying to surprise myself so was it then that only until you reached a certain level of poker success that you could kind of let go of needing to be successful in baseball because you could now replace that by a certain level of success in poker that you would feel okay with yourself in a certain way. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think I've just chased imposter syndrome my entire life, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, at some point, at some point, you recognize that you actually were the imposter. Whenever it comes to like pursuing the sport, uh, like I had to have a hard talk with myself at some point where it was just like, "Look, man, you." You just weren't ever going to do this. Like you're older now, you're not 19. This isn't going to break you to to accept this reality. Um, and you know you're doing just fine in poker now. So like th this is your new pursuit. But the trajectory of my poker career was very similar. It was very up and down. And yeah, my my highs were much higher, and my ceiling was uh, a lot more sustainable. But I went broke plenty throughout the first 10 years of my career. Uh, at points where like it was. A shock, right? Like uh, eight years in, I have 300,000 for the first time and uh, a year and a half later, I have zero. So it's like stuff like that's kind of inexcusable and it, it's a bit of self-sabotage type stuff. Um, but then even on the back end of my career, the last 10 years where I've played nothing but high stakes and I've had uh, you know, a, a role that a younger me would never even be able to fathom and uh, at least monetary success that most would, would, would uh, qualify as having made it. I never feel that way, right? I still feel like I'm the, I'm on that fringe 10%, like looking up at the elite where it's uh, I'm kind of trying to play myself into a position to kind of uh, have a shot, right? But no part of me actually believes that I'm elite. Uh, and part of that is I don't believe anybody's elite when it comes to a game like poker. Uh, I just think it's so impossible to master at least in our lifetime um but the other part of that is so much of our eyes have been opened in the last six years with the advent of solvers uh the application of technology you know the game is just so wildly different and i feel like i've done a great job of keeping up but it's been exactly that right it's it's just keeping up i'm not setting trends any longer i'm not really uh discovering new new paths to the game it's it's kind of there for me to learn is it also because of that improvement mindset that you have that and like you said that you now see 
you know, with solvers and how, how complicated the game actually is and how far from, you know, GTO we actually are, that you always focus, you said nobody's elite, so do you then always focus on the things that we don't know yet that kind of keeps you a bit grounded where people are like, yeah, of course, we lead them the best, blah, blah, blah. They naturally focus a bit more on all the skills they do have and less on the skills that they do still lack. Right. Yeah, I did for a long time. Uh, I, I aspired so heavily to kind of prove some things that I thought were theoretically good uh, that I may have been doing like way before this stuff is explored. Uh, like it, it warms my heart so much to see the amount of overbetting that's taking place now. Like it just makes me so happy because this is stuff that like, at least in the live realm, uh, you know, guys like me were, were doing way back in the, the, the mid 2010s. Um, but along the same lines, I just realized like also there's a downside to all of that, right? With every, with every new line that gets discovered and popularized, uh, the game gets that much tougher. Like even whenever you have shit regs that have no idea why they're doing what they're doing, but they're mimicking proper sizings. It's it's a handful to deal with, right? Like there's there's almost nothing more dangerous than somebody who's capable of betting 300% pot and has no fucking idea why, right? <laughs> like figure that one out in real time, you know? It's, it's, like, it's, like, it's, it's, like, it's like, you know, that the mentality, well, if I don't even know what I'm doing, then how are you supposed to know what I'm doing? Exactly, exactly. And especially if you don't really know them very well, right? Like if they're 26 and they just come out with a 3X pot size bet, you're just like, fuck man, this guy's really studied. And then maybe after like 10 hours with him, you're just like, oh no, okay. He like saw that on a video somewhere and was just doing it. I get it now. But that's a lot of error that occurred over those 10 hours because you gave him too much credit in, in too many spots. You know, you start paying off lightly because you assume he has the proper bluffs and it's live. So him having it, it doesn't really confirm or deny anything. You know, you're just like, well, he had it. Like, I assume he's still balanced in that spot too until you just realize Nobody's fucking balanced. Nobody has any idea what's going on. Um, but but to answer your question as far as like, uh, is that pursuit of, of um, you know, carving a path, uh, something I'm passionate about? I was for a very long time. And I think now I'm to the point where uh, I'm much more passionate about just being the best in whatever arena it is that I'm tackling. Because I realize more so now than ever, nobody can be uh, just great across the aggregate everybody is turning into a specialist it's almost impossible not to right so you pick a lane you you it's not even anymore like tournaments or cash no limit or mixed it's like really really drilled down like do you want to be the best online six max 100 big blind player in the world okay go pursue that right do you want to be uh, a live uncapped cash high stakes reg? Okay, go ahead and pursue that because that's a totally different strategy. Do you want to be a high roller MTT player? Okay. Do you want to be an open field average buy-in of 3K MTT player? All of these are vastly different skill sets, vastly different. And, you know, it might be a little controversial to say, but like we talk about this all the time when um, these massive fields pop up. And, uh, you know, you have the, like the main event was a great one. Chris Brewer ran the, the, that bet of, um, trying to discover win rates in the main event and basically said, I'll let you pick 50 players, any 50 in the world, you can have them. Uh, and if they, if they collectively cash for more than 200% ROI, like I'll lose the bet, whatever. And people were taking absolute crushers, right? Like the Adamos and, uh, I mean like Corey, 
saved the bet for a lot of people, uh, which, you know, whatever, maybe it was an anomaly, maybe it wasn't. But, um, you know, when you start to cherry pick out of the high roller scene for the main event, you might not be picking the guys with the highest ROI, right? Like, I almost certainly... Yeah, like I almost certainly would rather take, uh, and this is no slight to the high roller scene, and it's certainly no slight to the guys I'm about to mention, but guys like Darren Elias and Joe McKeon, who've just proven time and time again that their niche is running through soft, large fields, like their ROI just might be higher than a guy like Fade Wars, right? And I know that that's controversial in nature, but it's not meant to be, right? It's no slight against Fedor. Fedor is obviously elite, but you train to your environment, right? Like yeah. I'm, I'm always going to be weaker at hundred big blinds than I am at 500 because I'm just used to playing soft games uncapped. Yeah. And it's the decision-making process that a high roller traditionally goes through when he plays high rollers. That's mm-hmm. probably a lot of it's going to be maybe uh suboptimal when you play yeah. in, for example, a main event. Also, I think in the end, making good reads, on on the players or on the pool and the person with the most experience probably has the best reach and therefore makes the best place like if i go now play live cash which i never do uh i might be the best studied player at the table but my reach i probably need some time like if i would then put a lot of time in it live environment i think i will uh be one of the best there because then my reads are spot on but as long as my reads are wrong i need a certain time to adjust to to the live environment yeah, I think that's a really great way of putting it. Um, and I think it's an important conversation to have because what's fun about these conversations is that uh, there's no model for it. There's no right or wrong. And the what, what, what creates uh, hostility or tension around these conversations is that the best in the world tend to try to want to fit it into a model, right? We just know that the guys on the high roller scene are better poker players than Phil Hellmuth. They know more about the game. They're more studied, period. They're just making higher EV decisions always, always, right? But you just cannot deny that he makes up for that in some sort of way. Um, And I I think what makes the most sense to me when I try to uh, kind of run this through my brain is to like, or to like logic out how this can make any sense is a few things are happening. One, the collective groups that are elite are looking at the game uh, as infinite, right? They're, they're taking the infinite mindset and they're recognizing that volume is king. And over the course of uh, forever, the decisions being made are going to fall in their favor as compared to Helmuth. Helmuth doesn't view the game that way. It, it's very finite, right? It's point by point, decision by decision, each decision being unique to him forever and ever. Like he'll never have another one like it again. And he draws upon that in his previous experience, and uh, it allows him to guess more accurately than some people are operating theoretically. Uh, And I kind of got some perspective to this when uh, I was speaking to an online crusher uh, a couple weeks ago at a wedding, and we were talking about live cash. And he was like, do you still enjoy it? Like, do you still love the game? I was like, I I truly do. Like, it's, it's so much fun to me to be able to problem solve day to day, like for a living, like that's literally what we do is we try to, we put ourselves in these tough, tough spots. And then we try to uh, ration, ration our way out of it, you know? And he's like, I don't understand. What do you mean by problem solve? Don't you just have a memorized strategy or like, haven't you just like 
basically uh, come up with the, the, the full scope of your strategy and outside of it being a unique situation, you're just pretty much on autopilot. And I go, no, not at all. Like every single spot to me, uh, I'm taking in the information that the environment's offering me in order to drill down on my decision. So yes, I'm going with a rough, uh, estimated strategy, a, a baseline strategy, if you will, but I'm almost never executing it because I'm playing against Joe or I'm playing against Bob and they do certain things. Their sizings mean different things. And I'm always internalizing that skewing me in one direction or the other. So almost every single decision I make is exploitative in nature, except for maybe, you know, some auto C-bet spots or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once money starts to go into the pot, from that point on, we're brain solving, right? And we're just using, we're using theory as guardrails, so to speak. But we're also of the mind that it's okay to freestyle and take those guardrails off. And, you know, if it just makes sense to come up with a 10X pot jam in this spot and we've never looked at it before, I don't care. Let's just do it. Um, and that was kind of like eye-opening to both of us because he's just like, I don't understand that at all. <laughs> like, I well, get it. All like, players. But it's like, it's, it's, I would say this is the clash between uh, a GTO approach and an exploitative approach where the GTO mm -hmm. approach focuses more on playing a solid strategy. Let's say, you know, obviously we don't play GTO, but at least it's, it's the mindset of I play my baseline strategy, which is very solid as long as you deviate from that i make money i'm not really looking to win more than i quote quote should because i think my strategy is good i don't really want to deviate from it where the exploitive mindset is way more okay you know you have some like you said some out of seabed spots which are based on for example theory but it's way more like what does joe do or what does joe do wrong that i can capitalize on so you're constantly attacking whereas the gto minded player is more playing a defensive strategy yeah. which i think if he would now go play live, the defensive strategy would probably be best because he doesn't have the reach on Joe that you have. Correct. Right? 100%, and obviously, not even close. And obviously it's, it's, it's a double-sided sword. And I see this actually, this is actually, I think, a big mistake that a lot of players make. They think that they are an exploitive player while actually, you know, they're making wrong exploits. And then you're kind of cutting yourself. In, how do you, what was the expression? You cut yourself in the fingers? Is that the expression? So uh, Cut off your nose to spite your face. That, let's let's keep it on that because it's like you either make for example a six bb uh, winning play or you make a minus six bb losing play right? right whereas the gto frame player is gonna you know be at least neutral if he's not gonna make a big blunder so it's a completely different mindset towards the game and i think the bigger you reach and and the you know the more accurate you reach the more exploitive play does well but unfortunately a lot of players think they are having good reads, but they're trying to mind read their opponent and they're often wrong and they're just making bad plays. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know if, uh, I, I don't even like to give too much credit to the term reads because it's so inaccurate when you, when you really break it down. Right. Um, I, I, I like to think of it more as being able to uh, absorb as much signal as possible. Right. So I think, I think when we're talking about guys who have a good live presence that are able to uh, really extract as much information from the arena as is available, what they're actually really good at is separating signal from noise. So they're very good at being able to recognize when somebody's betting patterns actually do align to a different range than their opponent is representing. 
versus when somebody just has set betting patterns that are just their set betting patterns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's just like kind of one simple example. But um, yeah, to me, I, there's just such an interpersonal aspect of live poker where humans just really struggle to deceive to a, to a point that they're absolutely um, they're they're absolutely bulletproof, right? And I, I'm saying that as somebody who takes a lot of pride in uh, feeling like I don't give a lot off, but I'm also not arrogant enough to know that I don't, right? I'm constantly on the lookout for where I could be potentially leaking information. Where am I uh, kind of overstepping? Like, does this bet size align too often to value as far as like the, the hands that I've played on tape? Yeah, that, that makes sense. So you're not necessarily talking about life tells, but you're also talking about uh, patterns in general, errors in yeah. range construction that you make. Oh, like I said, oh, I'm going to split my sizing here. And as soon as soon as a human splits the sizing, one of them is going to be unbalanced. The question is Correct. which one. Right. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to circle back on one, one interesting point. When you started to pursue poker, um, if you were ever afraid that you would encounter a similar cap as you encountered in baseball, or did your confidence and your self-belief did not get influenced by that experience to a degree that you doubted yourself going in? Oh, no. I, I've been riddled with self-doubt from, like, day one. I, I didn't even want to, like, really pursue this as a career. My uh, good friend Brian, who co-hosts the podcast with me, uh, he was, like, all in on it. He had no interest in anything else. Um, and he really talked me into it. Uh, we had probably been playing together for like two years, my junior and senior year of college while I was still pursuing baseball in a degree. Uh, he had dropped out and we were kind of just like rounding whenever I had downtime. And uh, he was always the consummate professional. Like if 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 we're referencing rounders, he was always like a worm. You know, the, the guy who was just in there, grinding it out on his leather ass, making sure that he was always profitable. Like he was always a winner in every game, but didn't really ever take on risk. And I, I was kind of, I guess, more Mike McDee-ish slash worm. Uh, I never did anything. Uh, I never did anything shady. So I don't want to align myself with worm, but I took a lot of risk. And uh, I had a lot of trust in myself whenever it came to, you know, 2002, 2003. Now you're talking live reads actually are a thing. Like, I mean, the worst kind of stuff, like your hand over mouth and people just really gave it away. Uh, and I had a knack for that. And I could just remember as I was graduating college, him and I having a discussion where I was just like, you know, I, I'm already failing at this baseball thing. I want to give it one more go. Uh, I don't think I can pursue another game and like just come up short. Like I grew up poor. I don't want to be poor forever. <laughs> Uh, and you know, I have a few thousand dollars now, which at the time was like more money than I'd ever seen. I was like, I think I'm just going to like cut my, my losses here, take the 6,000 that I've made and, you know, go pursue a programming job or something like that. He's like, you have a real talent for this. Like I'm out here grinding and I'm making money, but I'm doing it the hard way. He's like, you sit down and you can just see through people. And I bought into that again. It was like one of those things where when you surround yourself with people that believe in you. Whether it's true or not, the way that they hype you up kind of starts to 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 make its way into your subconscious. And I just truly bought into that. It was like, yeah, you know what? I do notice that I'm pretty good at picking up on this type of stuff. Five, six years in, it's like, okay, this is now my career. I'm kind of doing it. But I'm also riding the wave of variance the whole time. So I'm constantly going broke, constantly asking myself, like, 
is this something I'm actually talented at? Like, am I just bullshitting my, I mean, the first five years I was definitely bullshitting myself, right? I was just lucky enough that it was a soft market. And uh, as long as you had a pulse and half a brain, you were going to make some amount of money. Um, but like once Black Friday came around and I'd gone broke off of 300,000 just post Black Friday, it was a long, dark year of really questioning, like, do you have what it takes? Like everybody believes that you're the most talented in the group, but you have fucking nothing to show for it. Like, did you just sell yourself really well to all your friends and make them believe you're talented? Because you, you seem like you suck from a results standpoint. Like when the results don't align with the projections, it's just like at some point you have to have a tough conversation. Um, and I think that the timing was just really good. It was right before the advent of solvers, but it was also like right as Run It Up was launching uh, as a, or sorry, Run It Once was launching as a training site. And I just remember watching a, a sauce video on um, toy games. And it kind of took me back to when I was building algorithms as a computer scientist. I was just like, you know what? There's an element to this game that I'm ignoring. I should really dig into studying the math a little bit harder, trying to think a little bit more logically about it. And I ended up having like the best year of my career in 2013. And shortly thereafter, I was playing high stakes. So I didn't even have time to think about whether or not I was a fraud. Interesting. Adam, you've been uh, silence, silently listening on the sideline. Uh, Murky here mentioned that at some point he saw the toy games and something clicked with him like, hey, wait, I can resonate with it. I'm good at this. Maybe poker is, you know, something that I can actually pursue and maybe I should actually take this a bit more serious and go all in on it. Did you have any similar experiences in your poker career? Not like that, but my initial career started moving to Thailand with some friends and it was a big experiment. Could we make money and make it work? So the first three months were survival, pay the rents. Can we make any profit at this game? Once that was ticked off, we're like, wait a second, we can just about survive. It was then, okay, where can we go with this game? Can we move up stakes? What's the limits? I met some guys in, a, in my first year who were playing like three or four buy-ins higher than me. And we met them for like a coffee dinner. And I remember just having a conversation with them about their approach to poker. And I was like, these aren't doing too much. Like these aren't, this doesn't feel like the ceiling's too high in this format. So I'm like, me and my friends who were having this conversation, like light bulbs in my head just going, we can definitely get to like two or three levels higher. And that was enough to like kind of pursue it, just go, right, let's go all in with it. I was living in Thailand, very cheap living costs. Then went to Bali, very cheap living costs. And the first goal was like, can I be sustainable? Can I be in this game long enough to not go broke? And then just looking ahead and going, how far can I take this pursuit? See, I think there's, it's always like little little snippets that keep you going. Like um, Matt was saying, like bits of belief from people around you. The guys I was living with at the time, they always believed that they could get the next level, the level above, the level above. And sometimes you just get pulled along for that ride. You don't know where it's going to take you. It's kind of a kind of blind faith of, I'm going to put the work in, I'm going to try Let's hope. Let's hope that it's going to go in a direction. And if not, like recalibrate or over time, you start to, uh, to to figure out if you can make it. So yeah, always a bumpy ride to begin with until you figure it out. I know, Matt, what you were saying, uh, 10 years into your career and you're still figuring it out, really figuring out where you're going to go. I really want to touch back on the point you talked about where you built your role to 350K by say, the 10th year, roughly, and then you lost it all. And you lost that role and you had to rebuild it. So yeah, I want to take it back to that moment and how did that feel? Like, first of all, what circumstances led you to lose your role? And how did you pick yourself up there? You've been 10 years in the game and you're almost like gone back to square one. How did you handle that? Yeah, uh, not well. <laughs> not well at all. Um, it was it was an unfortunate set of circumstances. I mean, it's like one of those things where, again, 
the timing was just so different. Like we were, we were so on our own and there was just nobody there. Uh, on one hand, I'm like so jealous of uh, like your generation and, and those who will come after you because of the amount of guidance that you have. Uh, even just you mentioning like, oh, we got to have dinner with people who were playing a little bit higher than us. And they kind of demonstrated like, you know, we can get there. We never had that, man. Like uh, the the group that was ahead of me was like Negranu, Lingren, Ivy. You know what I mean? Like they weren't sharing shit. They were very much interested in just like holding us down and ensuring that we didn't nip at their heels. Um, but, you know, luckily it was a time where it was very fruitful and there was a lot of money to go around for everybody. Uh, I, I got my first real role. I mean, I had 50K probably 10, 15 times. Who knows? Uh, and just kept playing the biggest game in the room until I went broke. I just, I, I hated the idea of uh, trying to manage risk of ruin. I was very aggressive when it came to like Kelly criteria and things of that nature. So uh, eventually, you know, you just end up going to zero. But uh, I ran deep in the main event in 2010, ended up coming out of that year with like a little over 300K. And for the next 18 months or so, uh, I was just playing as big as I possibly could and doing relatively well. I uh, made another WSOP final table the following year, was playing like 10, 20, 40 pretty regularly um, and, you know, holding my own. I, I went on some big upswings, like half million upswings. I uh, went on like quarter million downswings, whatever. Wouldn't have been that big of a deal, to be honest. I I wasn't properly rolled, but I mean, as far as like the live realm goes, I, I think I was fine. But I just didn't know what to do. I was 30 and I had money for the first time and I knew that poker couldn't be it. Like I started to see the writing on the wall that less and less money was available. And, you know, you don't get to 10 million in poker. You certainly don't get to a hundred million in poker. Um, and a million seemed like it was close. So it's like, I was already planning for what would happen after I became a millionaire. It was like, well, I need to scale. So let me get a stable as one does the first time that they come into money. And unfortunately, like I just backed my friends and believed that I could, teach them the things that made me good in a time where uh, the stuff that made me good wasn't really able to be transacted, right? It, it wasn't a concrete strategy. It wasn't necessarily rooted in game theory. It was a lot of intangible stuff. So I would show them the way that I worked, the way that I thought about the game, the way that I viewed flop textures. Um, you know, I, I would try to have them like group, like look at a flop and group it with high card, middle card, and then middle card, low card, and then think about what hands their opponents could have. I mean, this is all before like hand classes even existed. You know, I was, I was already thinking conceptually that way and it was a foreign language to them. So they each lost like hundred K playing five ten and uh, you know, like two K, three K MTTs. And next thing I know I'm on hundred K downswing myself. So uh, I remember I had like 30,000 left and I was just, destined to run at the zero i had no interest in playing two five and trying to grind it back up uh i i was just like still sweating my normal stakes and i looked at the bravo app one day there was a 510 game uncapped at venetian it was always a soft game it was easter sunday i was like i'm gonna go i head down there with 20 of my remaining 30k i sit with it all the very first hand i sit is straddled to 20 i look at kings in the cutoff I make it like a hundred because that's what we were doing back then. And this kid to my left who was a reg at the time uh, and had just also come into money, uh, like covers me. And he makes it like 700, just egregious sizes, but we're 2000 big blinds deep. Who gives a shit? 
and it comes back to me and I just like go massive. I make it like 4,500 and he just smashes for 20 K. And I'm like, if this is the way I die, this is the way I die. And I call and I go twice. And he goes, no. And it's like this kid uh, six months ago would have ran it 16 times if he would have had the opportunity to, you know, but he had just come into some cash, like probably had six figure role for the first time in his life. And he just absolutely wanted to destroy me. And I think when you're at your lowest points like that, you're projecting that like you're desperate and you need this win and like, please. And for him, it's just like, if I destroy you, I now become the King Greg in this shit get filled game that is worth hundreds of thousands to me. So he goes one time and I'm like, okay. I was like, do you have aces? And he just goes, nope. I'm like, oh, thank God. So I turn over my Kings and the flop just comes ace, ace, deuce. And he rolls over ace, king suited. I'm just fucking dead. So uh, I'm broke now. I have like 10,000 and, you know, rents due. I take care of my family back home. Like that's going to last me maybe a month, month and a half. Uh, I take out a credit line because my credit was really good. I had like an 800 credit score. So I get like a 15K credit line and I just kind of press pause on everything. Uh, I mope. I'm depressed for a couple of weeks. Uh, I don't know what to do. Like I literally remember waking up to take a nap. <laughs> like I'd get out of bed. I'd walk to my couch and I would like lay down and take a nap. Uh, it, it was, it was, I don't want to say it was dark. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to make this sound like it was more than it was, but like, it was a low point for me for sure. Um, and you know, it just kind of brought me back to when I got cut from the baseball team. Like that was a, that was a low point in my life. Uh, you know, a lot of struggles that I went through growing up with my mother and her addiction. Uh, when I got cut from the baseball team, my granddad, who was like one of the most meaningful people in my life was passing away from cancer at the same time. So like, I was able to draw upon times in my youth where I shouldn't have been able to have the maturity to power through, but I, I, I kind of found it. And I just remember like how much I leaned into the things that I could control. Uh, so, you know, after a couple of weeks of eating like shit and sleeping all day and feeling pretty bad about myself, uh, I kind of just leaned pretty heavily into self-discipline and uh, self-growth. And the first few weeks, few months, maybe, it was mostly just a regimented routine of eat well, work out, and wait. And it was a lot of like, you don't realize how much you're doing nothing until you have all the time in the world and you have a monetary ticking clock over your head, right? It's like, I have no way to make any money whatsoever, but I have enough money to kind of press pause on life for like three months, maybe five with my credit, right? And so you don't want to do anything rash. You don't want to just like, go start working at a gym for $12 an hour and just like give up on everything. But at the same token, you understand that like every single day that you just sit around and do literally nothing, you're, you're one day closer to being homeless. You're one day closer to having to move back in with family and things of that nature. Um, but what I did notice is as I got positive momentum going with, uh, with training more and eating well, my mind cleared up and the doom and gloom and the sinking sensation of like being a failure started to escape me a little bit. Uh, and, you know, I started to do a lot of writing, a lot of introspection, a lot of like asking tough questions that had almost nothing to do with poker, but at the same time, everything to do with poker, you know, like why do you constantly get yourself to the point of high achievement and then fail? Like being able to answer these, these kind of tough questions that most people shouldn't even be in a position to ask themselves. Right. Uh, 
I feel kind of fortunate that I chose a career path that forced me, forced my hand on that. Um, and the, the real tipping point was uh, about four months into all of this, two events happened. Uh, one, Russell Thomas made the final table of the main event. So this was 2012. Uh, he was a November Niner with Jesse Sylvia, who was a good friend of his, and Greg Merson, uh, and uh, Jeremy Osmus also. Um, and three of those four I was incredibly familiar with. Jesse Russell, or sorry, Jesse, uh, Greggy, and Osmus were 1020 regs that I'd played hundreds, if not thousands, of hours with over the years prior. And I knew their game in and out. Uh, well, Russell had hired Jason uh, Somerville to coach him. And we were loosely friends. He knew I had a lot of experience with those three. So he kind of brought me on the team. I got paid like 4K, literally nothing. Um, but it was a it was such a magnificent experience as far as like validating that I was competent at least. Uh, and then Russ got fourth, which I felt like, you know, I played a very, very, very tiny role in. Uh, reality is I probably played no role, but... In the moment, it was it was positive momentum, uh, and then shortly after that, I was asked to give a um, a keynote speech at my high school on uh, choosing an alternative career path, like kind of going off the beaten path. And I had decided that I wanted to frame it around Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So this notion that uh, you know most people kind of get trapped in the quote unquote rat race of needing to fulfill food, water, shelter. Uh, clothing, things of that nature, and never really uh, evolve out of that. Uh, whereas the rest of the hierarchy is like seeking love from another, seeking love from oneself, and then ultimately altruism. Um, and I wanted to really put a heavy emphasis on graduating outside of the rat race. So in researching that, I really started to dig deep into my failures and uh, my sabotages and, and things of that nature. And luckily, I had a good friend who was kind of there, uh, almost like a mentor. He's 20 years older than me or so, very successful in the sports card industry. And he was just kind of watching from afar. Uh, the first six to eight months, he was just kind of patting me on the back saying like, you're going to get him killer. You know, don't worry about it. Like everything's going to be fine. And then the final two months, like as I was delivering the speech and everything else, and I'm literally dead broke at this point, he was just kind of like, you sound really good. And I'm like, yeah, man, I don't know what's going to happen, but like, I'm in a very different place than I was when all of this first happened. He's like, I'm going to give you 5k to coach me. And I was like, that's insane. You're one of my closest friends. Like I'm not taking your money. He goes, I'm not taking this for free. And he sends me a 5k wire. Uh, I never formally coached him. He would just call me and we would shoot the shit and I would talk hand histories with him. But he sends me this 5k wire. I go and play a $500 win event and get third for like 20,000 or 25,000, like immediately. So now all of a sudden, I just go from being broke to having 30K. It's like, okay. Uh, that was like uh, maybe March of 2013. I start grinding 2-5, enough to pay the bills, enough to maintain the bankroll, come into the World Series, and I have like maybe 20,000 left of the 30K. Uh, at the time, uh, Marvin Rettmeyer was buying packages. And so I put one together. I think it was like... Uh, maybe 20 events, 17 events, something like that. Um, sold it to him at small markup and ended up getting to keep a third of myself. And the second event I play uh, was the 3K6 max. I get third for like 200K. So now all of a sudden I have like $80,000. 
And I was like, Hey, like, I know I sold you 66%, but like, would you mind if I buy a little more? He's like, no, no, fine. So I buy some of my package back two days later, I get a fifth in a 1500 no limit event for like another 90,000. So now I have like a hundred K and I'm like, Hey, there's a five K six max. I know it's not on the package. Do you want a piece? He's like, I think you're a dog in that field. I'm like, okay, fine. No big deal. Uh, I play it. I stone bubble it. So I get max punished because I bought, I played hundred percent of myself, but fast forward to the end of the series, there was a 5k eight max. And uh, I didn't even ask if he wanted a piece. I just played it. I took all myself, except I gave my friend Birdo who gave me the initial 5k stake or whatever loan, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I gave him 5%. And I just go wire to wire in this thing where I have 95% of myself. Uh, I chip lead with five left. And uh, Matt Perrins actually ends up like getting me out of the door where we play like 120 big blind pot all in pre I've ace king versus ace eight. And he just flops me dead on the eight, eight, two board. Um, but I pick up another 200K score. So I had like a half a million dollar summer where I had almost half of it. Uh, and at that point, like, you know, the mind's a weird thing, man. When, when you get into this locked in phase where you truly believe in the process, uh, this is a whole nother conversation, but like this idea of process oriented thinking, it's, it, it's truly powerful in that regard, because when you start to get positive feedback from your process like this, the goals along the way don't even matter. The milestones are irrelevant, right? You just get this positive momentum swinging. And the next thing I know, like four weeks later, I'm playing 300, 600, 1200 in Ivy's room. Wow. Wow. What a story. Listening to that, I was trying to think, how was this not the end? When you lost your role, like 10 years in, I was yeah. like, how does he come back from this? Like, no, it's almost like the rising from the ashes sort of story. So for you, like, this must have been like such a like crazy transformation, like on reflection. But in that moment where you basically uh, lost your role, you've got nowhere to turn to, everything around poker seems to be going dark and not the direction you wanted to. And you said you had an introspect. So I'm really curious during this phase, you, you said you were asking yourself some really big questions. Why do I keep getting so close to success and achievements and blowing it up? Why are you making this work? And in that period, I want to reflect on what, what you came up with, but you seem to come out of that period in a much better frame of mind. Your friends were noticing, going, oh, wait a second, you seem ready. You seem like you've come out of it. So uh, during this internal reflection point, was there any kind of revelations you had, any sort of things you had to come to terms with in a conflicts of yourself? Or anything that was helpful that helped you move forward from there? Yeah, I, I mean, I want to be clear. Like, I think that the the high side of either myself or maybe just all of human potential is is very much restricted to moments in time, right? Like, we are our worst self far more often than we're our best self. But that was a big thing that came out of it is is recognizing uh, how easy it is to to fall into that ne negative momentum and become your worst self consistently, like make that your new default. And uh, I realized that like, I carried a lot of um, feeling of neglect from like childhood, uh, you know, feeling like I had to grow up too fast. And uh, I, I gave up a lot of my best years, I carried a lot of that forward. And when negative things would happen to me, they would amplify in my head, right, I would feel like they were happening to me, specifically, not just uh, as a byproduct of a game that I was playing or whatever, like it felt personal. And I always took it that way. I was, I was very much the type of person to wear my heart on my sleeve. And, you know, as my role was depleting, so was my mood. So was my, uh, appearance. Like if you saw me, you just knew I was, I was nearing a breaking point. Right. Um, I, I think I understood 
I had a lot more control over that sort of, um, I guess, outlook when it was all said and done. I wasn't going to be able to control the outcomes, of course, but I was at least going to be able to put myself in a better framework uh, to handle any or all of the outcomes. Uh, and this is something that a little bit later in my career, I worked pretty heavily with Elliot Rowe on and, and things of that nature. But even still, like I'm 10 years removed from that low point, uh, that cycle persists. Like I saw it happen again when I went on the 5 million downswing and I saw the, the, the rising from the ashes and my, me being able to bootstrap and really hold my own to, to come out of it. And the cycle was much shorter that time, which was great. Uh, and even now, like we're heading into a financial crisis, um, you know, a lot of things are swinging negatively. I see the writing on the wall, like there's potential for this cycle to, to present itself again. And I feel it happening when I lose sometimes, right? Like it feels dire. It feels like I'm washed up, uh, especially in a time now where it's like, I don't have the luxury of volume. But the stakes that I try to play or, um, you know, the availability of games to me, the last four years, I, I probably average two to 300 hours of poker a year. And I'm trying to turn that into a livelihood, you know, and I'm playing high enough that like, if things go well, you can, but we all know how big of a sample 300 hours is. You can certainly run that, uh, below EV. Hell, you could run at EV for 300 hours and still lose 20, 30, 50 buy-ins, who knows, you know? Uh, so I still do feel this notion that I'm living on the edge. Um, but at least emotionally and mentally, I think I'm a lot more equipped to, to handle it because of that specific time frame in 2012. Mm, super interesting. So I think it goes in line with like the cyclic nature of life. There's always like highs and lows. We never stay in one season for too long. And I think for you, like the lesson you've learned is that you can ride the waves, so to speak. You can ride the lows. You've got this kind of internal mechanism of realizing I can get my way out of it. I can find a way to make it work. So that gives you this kind of still the fear and self-doubt about the future. But now it's like this internal kind of almost like solarity where you're like, I can I can get through it. So whatever happens, I'll find a way. So I think that's a really uh, long-term lesson. Because I'm always thinking when we go through life. The life tests us. It goes, right, here's a lesson. And if you learn the lesson of that phase, you can go on to the next kind of chapter. So it's like playing a computer game. And if you can't get past the level, you just keep failing and failing until you level up the character. Life's giving you these little snippets going, learn this lesson, learn this lesson. And sometimes, like you said, you don't learn the lesson fully, but you learn better to cope with it. So the lesson that you will learn is how better to deal with these adversities. You might still put yourself in scenarios where you're going big downswings, you might even go broke again, but now you're like, ah, I can make that kind of, that rebuilding phase is a lot smaller and I can come back from that easier. So I think for you, like based on your character and the way you've talked today, it sounds like that's a important attribute. So during this time, do you feel like there was any uh, other skills that you learned that have set you up for today? Do you feel like during that adversity, you had to uh, develop any key skills that have allowed you to uh, yeah push on and on with your career? Um, I, I think one key skill that came out of it was uh, kind of the ability to learn how to publicly speak. And that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about, but uh, it's been an invaluable skill uh, as far as not just creating content. Like I don't even give a shit about that, but um, it, it's allowed me to carry myself in a, a public realm that isn't necessarily reflective of uh, the introverted shire type of personality that, that I truly am by default. Um, I would say the other thing that like has probably served me really well is uh, kind of understanding 
it's it's silly. One of my favorite movies is Good Will Hunting, and I think one of the most powerful scenes is whenever uh, Robin Williams is hugging Matt Damon, just saying it's not your fault over and over again. I don't know how much you guys can relate to this, especially kind of growing up in an age where uh, it's easy for you to just do a line check and see truly if it was your fault or not, right? Uh, the better part of my career, I think I absolutely wallowed in every single failure even if they weren't failures, right? Uh, I shouldn't rephrase it as I wallowed in every single negative feedback. Uh, so every time poker, which is truly one of the least objective games when it comes to feedback loops, every time I received some sort of negative feedback, I was absolutely decimated. I blamed myself so badly. I wanted to have so much control around those outcomes. And I truly reverse engineered every single spot to a, a point, a single decision that I could have made differently in order to you know, basically change the entire trajectory of a hand or a session or my life as a whole. And that was so fucking unhealthy. Uh, it's something that, you know, at least pre-solver era was almost a default mechanism to playing the game of poker seriously in any regard. Uh, I do think like current study has allowed us to alleviate that for a lot of people, but people come with these biases. They come with these uh, misconceptions and we're just kind of wired for results, you know, even if it's incorrect. And even if we are logical enough to recognize that that's not the right way to see the world, we're predisposed to it because it kept us alive for, for eons, you know? Um, so I don't know like uh, what, what your guys' experience is with that, but it took a very, very long time for me to get over that. And it, I, I took a lot of self-inflicted beatings because of it. Mm. It's when your identity is so linked to the outcome of what you're doing or the pursuit that you're on that when you have a failure in what you're doing, you become a failure. Right. See, like subjectively, like that's not true. You're so attached to it. You're so in it that it just it's really hard to separate that. So even if your friends are telling you, oh, don't get too attached, it's no big deal. You feel it like really viscerally that it's like you're to blame. I just had a conversation mm -hmm. with a poker player yesterday and he's had a very similar kind of issue going on where he just blames himself. Everything's his fault. He runs bad, his fault. Everything's just this massive self-blame narrative. And he's trying to learn the skill of acceptance. How do you accept the uncontrollables? How do you accept variance? How do you accept mistakes? How do you accept not being good enough? And all these things are like, uh, it's a real challenge to come up with as a poker player because so much of your identity is, is wrapped up in almost like fixing problems, being good, yeah. being smart, being clever. So now I've got to drop all that and be like, I don't know, maybe I suck. I've got to accept that things don't go my way. I can't control the outcomes, and you, but you want to control it. So you've got to get this like this weird acceptance of things aren't in your control. And I really like what you did during this kind of reflecting period where either consciously or subconsciously, you turned your life to controllable variables. I do this myself all the time and things are going well. My girlfriend always notices I'm hitting the gym harder. I'm tracking more things. I'm really like, like holding on to things that are very controllable in my life and I pursue them and grow in those areas. So it's, I've almost got this anchor or something to fall back on. It sounds like for you, you were able to uh, find controllable variables. It was being disciplined. It was doing good health habits, good gym routines. And that allowed you some solidity to like almost like push on from. So uh, yeah, one at the moment, like do you do similar things right now? Or how do you currently deal when you get stuck or you're on downswings? What are some of the things you do these days to maybe get yourself unstuck? Yeah, I, I think it's a lot of the same. Um... Unfortunately, I, I don't, I, I probably don't pay enough attention to the self-growth aspect of it. Like at 40, I feel like I've had my moments of clarity. I've had uh, my self-reflection and my self-actualization phase, but that's such bullshit, right? Like we shed our skin so often that uh, I wish it were something that I were a little bit more in tune to. 
and I think that I am just not actively right. It's like subconscious uh, attention. Like I, I'll have these bouts of anxiety every once in a blue moon when I'm just laying in bed. And I know that's my brain kind of saying like, Hey, you haven't paid attention to this in a very long time. Like, you know, take stock of the relationships around you, take stock of where you're investing your time, uh, the people that you're short with versus the people you show grace to, uh, you know, make sure that you're still on track to be a good person. And uh, that's easy to kind of get lost in the shuffle of, of day to day. I don't want to call it survival, but uh, you know, sort of thrival, if you will, like we're, we're always trying to pursue this, this level of eliteness, so to speak. Um, a lot of my attention gets diverted into the company now. And uh, I think <laughs> having the, it, having this conversation makes me aware of things that I already knew, but like don't necessarily want to say out loud, but I do think it's like almost an unhealthy obsession with wanting to get it to uh, these certain levels of, of scale and um, success, right? It, it's, it's a projection of trying to find a higher ceiling than what I was capable of achieving as a player, right? And it's always that next thing, right? It, it was baseball, then jumped into poker, and now poker, jumping into being an entrepreneur. And it's like, I, I strive so much to be in that 0.1%. And I don't even know why, because... I already know having had relative success in baseball and relative success in, in uh, poker that the, the goals mean nothing to me, like legitimately nothing. It's the building of the processes that I relish in so much. It's, I, I take so much joy in being able to say like, well, this is what worked for me. And this is the framework around uh, how I thought about the problem, right? That to me is so fulfilling because it's replicable and it uh, it has a certain level of integrity, I guess, around the framework, right? Like you, you're, you're not like being forced into something that is some cookie cutter bullshit that is a how-to methodology, right? It, it actually has like some deeper substance to it and it has a purpose and a why behind it. So like being able to like pass that on in any capacity to me is, is so noble, but um, I do find myself having like an unhealthy obsession with identifying to that and, and wanting to constantly pursue it in some aspect. Like, I don't know what I would do if it was all taken away kind of thing. Um, I'm still the same though. You know, at, at the end of the day, like I'll do stupid things like 75 hard where I'm doing two days. I don't need to do two days. I'm 40. I don't need to dunk a basketball. I'm 40. Like, but I constantly want to be proving to myself that uh, I, I'm at least staying where I was. Like, I, I don't want to acknowledge that I'm on the backside of life yet. And, you know, hopefully I'm not, but I, <laughs> at some point we have to acknowledge that we're not that far off. Like I, I can't possibly be 60 still telling myself like, we're almost at the halfway point. We're not quite there yet. You know? Um, but truly in my head, like my goal is not to, not to split life down the middle like that, where you reach a certain age and now it's all downhill from there. It's more so to just be like at the absolute peak through each phase. Like, I don't care if I die when I'm 70, as long as I'm a strapping 70 year old, you know, I want to be able to run when I'm 70. And if, uh, if they take me in my sleep, God bless, uh, whatever, I, I lived a happy life, but I just don't want to be old and decrepit. That's that's my fear, I think. 
Mm. Yeah, I think so much of what you said there is a healthy thing, like that obsession with being better, striving for more, not accepting the limitations of age, pushing your limits and not letting yourself regress. Most of those attributes are positive, but then we've got to balance it with the fact of, oh, wait, wait, when we go so obsessive with something, what do we forget about that we really value? It's often relationships, it's health, it's looking after ourselves, the people around us. And we get so singular focused on that obsessive value, which is really interesting because I feel the same way. Sometimes I set a very specific goal and I just go one track towards that goal. And I know as I've said it, it means nothing when I get there. Yeah. I know yeah. the pursuit is everything, but I'm so obsessed with like that journey of getting there that I sometimes forget my own rule that this is, it's all about the journey and the, the process. But then you get to that point or close to it and you reflect. And like you said, it's the lessons that you learned on that way that it was all about. So I think it's it's good to uh, sometimes we just need many iterations of this process of chasing things and realizing it's the it's the pursuit, not the outcome. But I think like having that almost like that self-awareness to realize where, where did I push this too far? Where have I overstepped my bounds? Where have I been too obsessed with this one metric or one area at a cost of other things? And I think that's, that's kind of the, the balance of high achievers. I think a lot of the high achievers are very good in certain areas and then other areas will be very bad, so to speak. And yeah. you want to find a way to uh, basically have the life you want in, in multiple areas, multiple avenues and the things that you value most, you want to uh, yeah find ways to uh, put the time into them. So ready for yourself, anything that you feel like you've, been obsessed with how was your relationship with poker during your career do you feel like you uh pushed it too far during certain years and do you uh, sacrifice other areas um i don't think so i yeah I, I actually think i was very lucky in that regard uh i've never been a volume guy I, I can actually even remember um coming up i was very close friends with uh he was a very 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 early heads up sit and go crusher uh his name was john ford he was I think he got fifth in the PCA the year that Ike uh, and that whole crew made it. It was like 2006, maybe. Um, but he's a Pittsburgh guy, and we were pretty close. And he was just strict online, like hated everything about live poker. And my whole crew was just all about live. And I can remember like we went on trips, and he would just stay in the hotel and grind online the whole time. He was mostly playing like stars, hyper sit and goes, or maybe it wasn't even hyper back then. Uh, but whatever, just like heads up, sitting goes. And he was doing really, really well. And all he would talk about is like volume, volume, volume. Like, you know, if I play X amount of tables over Y amount of hours, like this is what I can expect to return. And to me, like I was so romantic about the game. I was just like, how does that matter? Like, who cares? No way that you're making better decision over eight heads up tables than I am against one singular opponent in a live realm where I have all day to think about what it is that I'm doing. And it never correlated to me like uh, the diminishing returns of time spent versus, you know, the, like, okay, so maybe my hourly is like five X is high, but I can only play that one singular table and, you know, whatever the business side of it eluded me. I was still very much into the romantic side and I kind of built my career off of that. Right. It was like, that's why I kept pursuing higher stakes and why I was so willing to go broke all the time because I refused to play 3000 hours in a year. Like I did not get into poker to work a full-time job and then some. Um, so for me, it was just like, okay, I made a quarter million this year playing 1020 and I played a thousand hours. I don't think I could play more hours and uh, there's bigger games. So whatever's next, right? Like if I want to make a half a million, then I guess we're going to have to play 2550. That's all. Uh, and that was just the way that I always viewed it. So I probably didn't, that might be why I'm still here, right? That might be part of the survivorship bias is that at least one of those shots panned out. 
and it allowed me to survive. But more importantly, like I didn't play tens of thousands of hours to the point where like, I just hate this game. And uh, especially now where if I feel like it's tough to be a volume guy, right? Especially as an American, what do you do? Right. All of the soft money is live. Uh, it's impossible to play a Sunday schedule where you actually get in any reasonable volume, you know? So uh, I, I kind of feel like it's come full circle where uh, if, if we look at the bell curve of, of the poker trajectory over 20 years, it was like, yes, start with live playing one singular table, uh, you know, and, and make as much money as you possibly can fleece everybody for what they got. And then online boom, put in volume. That's like the apex of the, the bell curve. And then on the backside, post Black Friday is just like transition back into live, make all of the soft money, and and do it slowly. Mm. I like what you said there about keeping that romanticized relationship with poker, where your friends were around trying to tell you to play high volume, or at least they were. That was my approach. I did heads up and goes myself. I did Supernova Elite volume three years in a row, almost killed me twice. And sure. you get this kind of time for money kind of equation where you're like you can know your ROI is quite clearly and you're playing so much volume that you can kind of, kind of predict where you're going to be over the course of months and years but at the same time you lose that enjoyment almost all the people I know who um did the same pursuits the Super Mario League grinds they fell out of love with poker the, the grind at some stage because it's just not fun to do it that way so like what you said like keeping that yeah the kind of enjoyment of poker and I think like almost like life as we get to become adults, we almost totally grow up, grow up, be sensible, get realistic, work hard, stop enjoying what you're doing. We almost get that beaten out of us so we can uh, get a real job or do something kind of meaningful. For you, I like that. Even now, you still love the game. You're still looking for the right games to play, the right action. You still get that enthusiasm to play and learn. So I think your approach that you've chose over your friends and mine leads for a longer career, leads for a healthier longer relationships so whether you did that consciously or unconsciously, unconsciously or your personality but yeah, i think it's led you to yeah enjoy the game for a lot longer than other people i think it leads to uh other endeavors that are like ancillary to the space like you guys are creating this podcast this takes a lot of time out of your out of your day but it's it's kind of a byproduct of still having a passion and love for the game and not being in love with putting in mass volume and just collecting an hourly 100%. Yeah, I think sometimes you don't realize like what branches open up later down the line. Once you get a skill of something and you're passionate for an area, there's so many different areas within that that you haven't thought about. I remember when I was playing poker, I still play poker, make money, and then transition into something completely different, like a complete new idea, start a business in a very different field. But once you're in something and you enjoy it, you know it very well, doors open up, which are over time evolve, but like, yeah, you, you put some so much time into and passion for it that you've get good other opportunities which are available. Next to our Mechanics of Poker podcast, we also have a coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker 2.0, in which you can work with me and Adam and have us help you progress in your poker career. In our program, you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. Now, one of these, of course, is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. We'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your EV when those pots become very big. 
Our mindset and performance coach, Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt, and play your A game more consistently. And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and apply for the program and maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. So Rene, I was going to ask you, you um, your passion for poker, your relationship with poker, did it ever turn unhealthy? Or do you feel like you had a, a good balance throughout your career? I, I was also not really a volume guy. So I guess that helps, prevents you from getting bored of the game and making it less enjoyable. I think also the mindset with which you get into poker probably also determines the volume. Let's say you go into poker for the money aspect of it. And then you do this multiplying in your head. Like, wait, if my win rate is this, I play this many hands. You understand? Because you think about the money aspect. I never thought in terms of how much my hourly was, for example. I've never throughout my whole career up until today calculated my hourly. This is not something that 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 I think of. I, I think of poker as, you know, somewhere I go to to try to grow as a player, to try to grow as a person. I like new strategies. I like the problem solving of it. I like to be curious towards new strategies. And I noticed very quickly, once, for example, there's no more new novelty in my game. So when I'm not working on a new strategy, it actually becomes very hard for me to put in the volume. Like burnout is around the corner as long as there's no new novelty. For example, I remember when I was at the peak of my career as well, uh, there, there was, a, I think actually it was it was Mikey Boyfin. I remember pretty quickly. He, he, he wrote in chat, why do you always make the tree so complicated? But like, I do that on purpose, you know, it might, you know, I don't care if it's suboptimal or optimal. I like to be creative, you know, because it keeps, it, it keeps things fun for me. And sure, you know, that, that I will blunder sometimes, but sometimes also I'll make a great play. But this is what makes the game enjoyable for me. On the same time, if I reflect on my career, volume is also the thing that I've liked the most. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword again. On one side, it helped me become the player that I am today because I put a lot of time into strategy because that's what I liked, right? And I preferred study time over playing. Therefore, I did have a higher win rate than average players. So that kind of made up for it. But still, the high volume players would in the end make more money than me. Also, people who actually went into poker with the goal of making money. I, I'm just I'm just the, the, the gamer, you know? I, I like I like the, the strategy aspect of it. So... Yeah, I think I think I think not being volume driven has its has its benefits and its downside. Actually, also one point that you touched on, on that wedding where you talked with the online guy, he also needs to play a bit more from his own strategy. If you play, let's say, six tables at the same time, right? It's right. kind of you have to standardize decisions a little bit more. And mm -hmm. I guess when you start to standardize your decision, there's less room 
for the for, for the creativity. And if you're if what attracts you to poker is how deep it can go and how much creative lines you can execute, if that is something that really drives your your you your joy out of poker, if you remove that, then you will burn out most probably. So I guess you're a very creative player as well. The life environment also uh, encourages you to be. Is that then if we would remove that, you would just think poker is very boring? Yeah, if live were if live were removed, I would have quit a very long time ago. I, I, I just can't do it. Um, I've always kind of beat by my own drum. And I almost like relish the idea of being called bad because uh, it's one of those things where it's like bad objectively exists, right? Like there, there, there's a spectrum of bad, you know, less, less bad, average, good, great, elite, whatever. And wherever I fell on that spectrum, I just knew that it was impossible that I was actually bad because I just made too much money, right? Like, uh, not that that's the end all be all, but um, over a long duration of time, I just had too many positive results to believe in any way, shape or form that I actually was like on the far end of the spectrum of just being bad. But there were a lot of my peers who truly perceived me to be there. And I almost relished in the idea. It was just like, I didn't ever want to give in to the collective because I always felt like there was money to be made by doing something different. Uh, so my MTT career, not that it was anything luxurious or anything like that, but most of my MTT success was between like 2008 and 2014. And it was all predicated off of a limping strategy that I developed because people played like shit preflop facing a limp. And, uh, you know, I was reg battling the, the 109 rebuy on stars for the better part of two years. And I had like one of the higher ROIs and I never open raised, uh, but no one adjusted, even though the player pool was, you know, a couple hundred people of the same regs day in and day out, the arrogance around a 20 a, a something who is making money hand over fist is far greater than uh, the obvious deviation that could make them a few more cents on the dollar. Right. It doesn't work now because everybody has preflop charts and, you know, people adjust rather well. But, you know, back then it was like when you limped, suddenly you would get isolated by hands that wouldn't have open raised if it had folded to them. And that's just a lot of money. Like, I didn't know how it was making EV for me, but like it just was. And I kind of understood that. Right. It's like it, it ranges didn't really exist, but if you understood that you had playable hands and non-playable hands and you could be dynamic with those constructions. You could look at the table dynamics and say like, oh, okay, um, this guy has a reshove stack and this guy is prone to ISO me light. I have aces. I'm going to limp, right? And then you just get that exact scenario where it goes raise, jam, you have aces, right? Pretty pretty great spot. And uh, there was enough queen jack offsuits and ace eight offsuits and things like that turned over where it's like, if I had opened, I would not have gotten this scenario. So that was like always encouraging to me uh, to, to pursue alternative strategies. Now, obviously, alternative strategies are very different, right? Because we're, there are guardrails and very few people are willing to just shirk them. Um, I think Adamo is a great example of somebody who is a little bit more willing to take the guardrails off and, and explore the unexplored. Um, but even he is still operating from a pretty core space because he has to the environment dictates it right like you cannot go into the high roller scene and just beat by your own drum in every 
note of the game tree, right? You have to play pretty disciplined poker in most spots. But when you play a live cash game, 500 plus big blinds deep, there is no guardrail anymore, right? Because theory, as we know it, is just going to tell you to check a whole bunch until you arrive at the river and you're in a nuts or air spot. And then the uncapped range should just like shovel all the fucking money in, you know, single raise pot, five big blinds in the middle. Everybody checks down to the river and then the uncapped range, just like 50 X pots. Like, you know, that that's, that's a reasonable uh, kind of outcome for how deep stack poker will play, but that's not what humans are going to do. We don't like that asymmetric risk reward proposition. Uh, it's almost actually never going to play out that way. Instead, it's going to be a lot of probing and a lot of gradually growing the pot until suddenly it's only a 2x pot on the shove on the end. And now if you have a pretty good grasp of cap versus uncapped and uh, you know how polarization works, there's a lot of fucking edge to gain because people are putting way too much money in with hands that are just supposed to play pretty passively and defensively. Uh, so that's that's my passion, I guess, and why I've always gravitated towards live is because humans are fallible and they're far more fallible when they have to look you in the face and they're not doing a bunch of diligent work that can be applied over volume. Interesting point. I, the, the, the volume, the volume equation, I wanted to maybe add one more thing here that for me personally, and maybe you can relate. I, this is actually something that I think I discovered a bit more recently when I was trying to analyze, okay, in terms of my career, what could I do better? And volume is definitely, I would say, the number one thing. Now, obviously, a certain standardization of your strategy is part of that. I do think there's still a lot of room uh, for creativity, even in today's world. Like you said, obviously, we're a bit more restricted because you know players are playing more closer to optimal, so we cannot deviate as much anymore, for example. But I think it's also a common misconception that people think that, oh, GTO, you know, it's this boring thing that just kills the game. I mean... If you, if you give if you if you give the solver you know some options he is definitely relentless like you said just shoving 50x yeah. pot well good luck there's nothing yeah. boring about shoving 50x pot in my opinion right right um but what i noticed in terms of uh you also touched on the need for control and that was actually a very big leak or is actually a very big leak when it comes down to volume for me because because i want to control it so much playing multiple tables and making more mistakes and focusing more on volume and lacking the quality of my play. I find that very hard to deal with uh, mm. in terms of then that I will make more mistakes. But also something that I recently realized is I always took quite a lot of pride in terms of how I live around being a poker player, how I prepare for sessions, how I analyze after sessions. But I recently noticed that the frame was wrong. Like in terms of over-preparation, I already knew that a long time ago that that was actually wrong. It was just me trying to prepare in a way to reduce certain pre-session anxieties, for example, which had more to do with a fear of making mistakes, a fear of loss and all these kind of things. So I had to work on actually resolving those instead of building insane uh, pre-session routines. For example, if I only slept six hours or five hours, I'd be like, okay, today is shit. Uh, I'm going to just study all day and then try to sleep at least eight hours next day so I can actually play. That's obviously, yeah. this costs you a lot of volume. This is obviously not the right way. Obviously, we should try to prepare in a way that allows us to show up, you know, at a decent level, but this this surpassed the point. And recently I noticed as well with analyzing in terms of after playing that I had the strong need to analyze my game, especially if things were not going well. 
And I always thought actually that was a good thing, which, you know, we can debate is a good thing, but the frame from which I'm doing it was wrong, which it was mainly to remove the feeling of doubt. And mm -hmm. I was trying to create more control around the uncontrollable. So I needed to get closure. Okay. I needed to rationalize or analyze away the feeling of that I lost in a session. Okay. So that I could hundred percent say that if it was my fault, why it was my fault. And I immediately went into improvement mindset or that I could blame it on variance. Did you, do you, how do you deal with like that uncertainty part of the game? While you already mentioned that you are very much a person that needs a certain control, right? Like a lot of, a lot of variables in poker are uncertain. You know, we can have a decision and if it's good or bad, yeah, we just don't know. How do you deal with that? Those uncertainties? Uh, you and I are very similar and also very different at the same time. Um, I, I think that I have a similar view of volume and the lifestyle around the game. Uh, I, I say this very often that I'm probably half as rich and twice as happy as uh, the the alternative version of me that was given the exact I, I can same relate. Path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I just... I did not capitalize nearly enough on the opportunities presented to me as far as like money goes, but I couldn't be happier with like the lifestyle that I've created for myself and um, the way that I've utilized my time throughout the years. Uh, as far as like pre-session, post-session, we're the exact opposite. I, I have little to no anxiety going into play. I have this deep, deep, deep sense of self-trust. And I think it's a byproduct of playing live because the control aspect actually comes from putting all of the weight on yourself to be able to analyze a situation in real time, right? I'm not restricted to uh, uh, executing a preconceived strategy where uh, my hand kind of gets slapped if I steer off the beaten path without good justification, right? I'm kind of free in game uh, to just react and trust those reactions. Uh, and I will say like what used to harm me in the past was rationalizing those reactions in hindsight, right? We didn't really have a, me a methodology uh, to analyze it in real time because we didn't really have strategies to operate off of. You were just truly freestyling at all points. Now I have a baseline to at least compare it to. So I have to acknowledge when I make a deviation in real time that it was a deviation, right? And I have to sit with that and I, I have to understand that that's happening. Um, but because that's my process and because that's largely happening in game and I'm making these adjustments on the fly, uh, I also don't have any sense of urgency to review a session after the fact. Um, most of my games now are played on live stream and it takes me days, if not weeks to actually go back and rewatch. Um, not, not for fear of exposing inconsistencies or mistakes, but kind of the opposite. I'm afraid to go back and see that I played too close to baseline and left a bunch of money on the table. Uh, I, I'm afraid to lose that identity of the guy who's willing to just like get in the arena and battle it out bare knuckle style with, with no aids or tools. Uh, and I feel myself in game gravitating more and more towards the theoretical solution in a spot that I just fucking know is wrong. Right. Like just gravitating towards like you're way, way too high up to fold here, man. He only bet three quarters pot. Like you just can't let this one go. But 
you've played in the live realm long enough. You you've played against this player type enough times that, you know, 75% pot doesn't mean the same thing to him as it does to theory. And you know, that that is a bounded range coming at you, not a, a balanced one. And you know that this guy hasn't found a bluff for three streets since the Reagan administration, right? You know all of these things, but you're so saturated by what is mathematically correct and theoretically correct that you start to lose your way a little bit. It's hard to find that North Star when you're operating with two compasses that point in opposite directions. And, and that's kind of the, the difficulty that I've found myself struggling through um, as I've kind of really nurtured the, the learning process. Uh, there's a certain sense of power to being ignorant and blissful, right? Like uh, that, that phrase exists for a reason. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that uh, it would be a very big problem in 2022, but God, did it serve me well in 2016, because the fact of the matter is, uh, I wasn't very sharp on modern strategy at the time, but everybody who claimed that they were also wasn't. Like looking back in hindsight, they didn't know shit either. And the things that they thought they knew were really, really good were just like mediocre at best. They, they were just functionally working because pretty much anything that you did with conviction was going to work back then, you know? Uh, so like I look back at that time frame and I'm I'm so envious for that former self because I was playing stakes that will probably never exist in the live realm consistently again and I was doing so as though I was like trying to figure out how to beat 1 2 no limit on Zynga you know I was I was literally just looking around at the characters and saying like well how do you deal with a $10,000 sleeper straddle when you're playing 3 6 12 no limit you know and it was like forget all that how do you deal with Rick Solomon Right. Like that's that's what I'm really trying to solve. That's the only thing that matters is that I, I get to play against this man and he has certain tendencies and I need to get to the bottom of it. I need to be a detective. Um, so, yeah, I think my process has adjusted, but not so much in the mechanical sense, uh, just more so in the emotional sense. I, I don't I don't feel the anxieties anymore. I don't feel like I said, I don't, I don't feel those low moments nearly as often, if ever, where I'm just beating myself up over decisions. Um, if anything, I, I feel like that, that imposter syndrome, I say it all the time because I really do feel like this over looming sense of the better that I get, the worse I feel like I actually am. Uh, and it really does project out because now I feel like I'm also losing my identity along the way. Yeah, that, that, that sounds familiar. You touched on that, uh, 300, 600, 1200 game again yeah and i wanted to i wanted to go back to that because that was right after that great series that you had and mm -hmm. you mentioned that you capitalized on the opportunity to play the 306 on the 1200 in ivory's room how did that come about uh so <laughs> kind of a funny story this, this is shit that only happens in vegas um during my come up uh the venetian was like the big no limit room uh in the like early 2010s so like 2009 to like 2012 ish, um, that was like the spot to get all the loose action. There was always the Bellagio 1020 game, uh, but that was you know a very different crowd as it still is today. The Venetian was like 510 uncapped, so it was where the people who were trying to transition to the 1020 largely played. And then every now and again, out of the blue, like these bigger games would just crop up. Uh, sometimes Jamie Gold would pop into town and they'd play 2550. 
um you know other times it would be uh big call Kenny Tran or you know whoever like people would just randomly pop into town and the Venetian would be the place that they would go because they could always get a table there the Bellagio was always overrun and also you know the sharks would just come swarming whenever soft games would would appear but the Venetian they had a lot of privacy they they could organize games uh no big deal so um there was a man named Bob Bright uh you guys are probably familiar with him he plays on poker Go quite often and he was in every one of those games. Anytime that uh, a 1020 game would pop up or bigger, he was always a staple of them. And I was lucky enough because that was kind of my home casino that I would get to, you know, work my way into these games a lot. I would just be there so I could hop on the list whenever they would start, whatever. And we played together a fair amount. And, you know, he's he's just so rich. Money does not matter to him. It was all about the game. It was all about putting people to tough spots. And he fucking tortured me. Uh in a, in an emotional way like he just always put me to the toughest decisions and i always made the toughest calls like there were literally times where i would have case money on the table and he fucking knew it like i know he knew it and i know that nothing would make him happier than getting a kick out of like breaking a 30 year old who was gonna have to go sweep floors for a few months to to, to get his role back up like that's how he came up you know he came up initially building his role as a blackjack player before he got banned from all casinos and stuff like that you know that 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 was how he made his first hundred thousand couple hundred thousand and then eventually he discovered or uh he founded this trading company and made hundreds of millions whatever but uh you know having brushed elbows with a lot of the bob bright types of the world they have a chip on their shoulder you know they they believe very much so in the ben cb mindset of like i busted my ass you're gonna bust yours you don't get to just play a fucking game for a living and get away with it so there was always this big challenge. Uh, and uh, I, I remember the last time we had played at the Venetian, um, I had a bluff catcher of some sort, but I had case money on the table for sure. We were playing 1020 and he put me all in for like 12,000 on the river into like a 4K pot. And I tanked long enough that the game broke around us. It was like a 12 minute tank on the river. And I wasn't thinking about anything. Like I just had a bluff catcher and it was all my money. So I'm just like running through all of the emotions of what happens if I call and I lose, uh, you know, would he actually ever bluff here? Yada, 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 just running through all of it. Right. And I'm trying to get a read on him in the process. It's 2012. I'm just trying to, you know, figure out what the fuck's going on. Eventually I make the call and he's just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, nice call. And he just tables the bluff, you know, and I win a very meaningful pot to me. So uh, I kind of befriended him after that. We played a lot locally in uh the games that would rotate casino to casino and it must have been late 2012 early 2013 um he bobby baldwin jrb ben lamb and a handful of others had started playing 200 400 in ivy's room which was like pretty much brand new at the time um and he would always come to these smaller games almost kind of like to flex on us uh, us little peons, you know, he'd come play a little five, ten, twenty, splash around with the with with the common folk, and be like, "Oh, well, I lost uh, I lost two hundred thousand in the market today, and then I played two hundred four hundred yesterday, you know, that kind of stuff." And he would always leave and say, "You have an invite anytime you want it, kid." And I would just, you know, be sitting there staring at my last five thousand dollars, being like, "Okay, I'm, I'm gonna take you up on that." Meanwhile, like you know believing that I'm never going to have a shot in hell of sitting in that game. Um, and fast forward like a year and a half, I went from broke to pretty flush and we were playing this five, 10, 20 game. And uh, 
you know, it was, it was actually small for me at that time because I was flush again. I was just kind of like, oh, I'm bored, Bob. I'm going to take off. He's like, well, we have a 200-400 game on Thursday. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, would love to have you. I'm like, you would? He's like, yeah, offer stands. I'm like, I'm in. Uh, so I, you know, hit up a couple buddies, sold uh, what I thought was enough action, which in hindsight almost certainly wasn't. I probably had like <laughs> 10, 15% of my net worth on the table. Um, went, I lost small, but like had a really enjoyable time with everybody. Uh, they really seemed to take to me. They liked my action. The game was just like pretty tight passive. It was, it was the, it was the more dead of the lineups, so to speak. It was, it was a clear tryout. Um, and I got to play the game a couple of times until, uh, you know, Jeremy and I swapped numbers, which was a good sign. He got me a box at the Aria and I'm just like, Oh my God, I'm one of them. This is, this is great. And uh, I just got the text one day. He's like, 300, 600, 1200, 100K minimum buy in. You in? That's like, no turning back now. I'm gonna have to figure out a way to, to get my way in there. That's like, you know, I have two buy ins to my name, but yeah, I'm fucking in. Um, so I worked out a backing deal uh, where initially we were massively, massively underrolled and I had way too big of a piece. Um, but we did okay. We did okay out of the gate. I, the first year I ended up like profiting maybe a million, million and a half. Uh, and we had like the whole role on the table dozens of times. Uh, so many times I was, I think we had like a million dollar role to start with, which was literally 10 buy-ins. Uh, there was so many times I was down to like the final 200 and I would run it up to like six or eight. And then uh, it all culminated in this night where I just got invited to like the sickest game. Like one of those games where I'm never getting a seat to start but it was still running somehow eight hours in and nobody had left except Bob Bright. So I got to take his seat. So it was like JRB, Rick Solomon, uh, Pat, Pat Panda, which if you guys are familiar with him, at one point he was like the biggest loser in online history. Uh, This kid from Macau, Um, all the Macau guys is like way back in 2014. So it was before they really knew how to play. So all the guys from the Triton tour, Paul Fua, et cetera. And uh, Roble, Roble was the only pro. So I get to come in and, uh, you know, Rick is sitting like 2 million deep and sleeper straddling to 10 K and I'm trying to abide by my guidelines to the deal. So I buy him for a hundred thousand. And the first pot I watch is like five bet to 75,000 pre. And I'm just like texting my guys. I'm like, I think we have to sit with it all. <laughs> like, what do you mean? I'm just like, well, I just watched like four hands pre-flop where half of my stack would have to be committed. And like, I don't know what you want me to do if I get pocket eights, but I'm not folding them. So like we have 650, man. I think we just sit with it. And they're like, we trust you. So I sat with it, ended up winning 1.4 million that night and never fucking looked back. Well, that's not true. I went on a big downswing, but like, uh, I, I was, I was good with them from that point moving forward. All right. Interesting. You, you said they liked my action, right? Is that very yeah. important? Because like, I know nothing about the live round, but I do understand, you know, that a lot of stuff is private. There's a lot of politics. If I, if I go play live, yeah. how, how, how can I have them like my action? So I get divided, invited in a game like that. 2022 is tough because uh, now if you look like you know what you're doing, you almost certainly know what you're doing. Right. Like it's, it's pretty tough to hide. I mean, you could just bet half pot on every street. You could use a one sizing strat that uh, is just largely handcuffing you. Um, 
to give you a for instance, Ben Lamb was one of the original people who was uh, in the game. After like two or three months of him winning too much, they made it so he was not allowed to raise preflop. So he could do whatever he wanted, but he could only limp. And he couldn't three bet. Uh, like, uh, I think that's what it was. He could only three bet if he like called a raise, but like if he limped, he couldn't limp raise is, is the point I'm trying to get at. So they basically restricted him preflop to like having to go post. He's still whatever, man. You're giving EV back. He's still a big winner in the game, right? It's just annoying. Uh, and then eventually, like he was still winning too much that way, and they just kicked him out. Um, but yeah, like 2012, 2013, there was no strategy, right? So uh, it was very easy to manufacture, or as like I like to refer to it, just like offer them a rebate, right? If you have the luxury of playing with seven amateurs that are all pretty bad or terrible at this game in one way or another. Some give too much action. Some don't give enough, whatever. Um, it's your duty as the winning player and the person who is a welcomed guest to offer them EV back somehow. And, you know, a lot of the ways that I did that was I would cap my bet sizings. So like I didn't really overbet much if ever outside of against pros. And that's kind of tough whenever you know, even though it was like 2013, 2014, whatever, and we weren't super studied into that, I, I had an idea of why it would come in handy. And you like, you had a gist of when to do it. Um, but I would often just not because if the difference between me betting 80% pot and two pots was the difference between uh, me dragging a $150,000 pot off Bob Bright with a smile on his face versus him shaking his head and motherfucking me under his breath, it was worth giving up that extra 120% of the pot. Like it wasn't even a question. Um, and yeah, I would just do things that would, I, I, I referred to myself as a facilitator, like all the money flowed through me and I would just take a cut along the way, right? Like I would open five X and you know, they're used to a pace of play in a certain game flow where it's like, it goes raise. You get to call with a bunch of hands. A couple of people call behind you with a bunch of hands. And you know, there isn't a ton of three betting that goes on, but that's usually for two blinds or three blinds, whatever I'm opening for five blinds and they're not adjusting anything. So it's still just like going call, call. And now the SPR is massively shrunk in post and they're all in a lot more often. And it just, it feels it's a rush. It's adrenaline to them. Like they're getting action even though all of the hands are still the same as if it was being open to two and a half X, right? The only difference is like now they're all in on the turn as opposed to not being all in at all. And like, they liked that. They liked that, that feeling. They felt like they could beat me for a big number. Uh, and then they did, they often did, you know, uh, now I don't think there's anything you can do to kind of present that level of action outside of like what Keating's doing, which is just advertising. You know, he's just, literally playing 89% VPIP and taking it all to the river to see what happens. It's a very interesting variable to take in consideration, playing a strategy that helps you stay in the game, right? Or to, yeah, like I said, they don't like to face over bets. They probably also don't like to you to three bet them all the time, right. uh, you know? So you kind of adjust to, to make them have a good time. You sacrifice sacrifice some uh, EV. I mean, you know, you know that you're gonna make good decisions post-flop anyway. Like in the Keaton example, you know, just play 80% of your hands. You can still minimize the impact. I mean, 80% is quite a lot, but you know, yeah. you can still <laughs> you can still minimize the impact, the EV loss of that by you know at least maneuvering post-flop in a certain way. So yeah, it's 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 very interesting. Uh, interesting factors think, to take in consideration. 
Sorry, I, I think the the big thing that is overlooked that people don't understand and why these games go private and why games are so bad is that uh, as important as it is when playing tough competition to get each street correct, uh, the truth of the matter is when you're playing against weak competition that pretty much plays at least a portion of their range face up, all of the EV, every single last penny of it is exchanged on the river, right? So it's like, that's where all the big bets go in. That's where all the major decisions are made. Uh, and that's where your bottom line is going to be derived from. So whatever pennies on the dollar you're giving up before the flop by playing too many hands or by uh, calling too many open raises or whatever, and then whatever you're giving up by like c-betting half pot instead of quarter pot because quarter pot looks pro-y, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. You're recouping 100% of it and then some uh every single time you arrive at the river and a lot of money goes in the middle yeah people often overestimate the ev of the quote quote correct play that's basically what you're saying right solver approved ranges don't take in consideration the fact that the guy is going to play his hand face up on the river and make huge mistakes then obviously you are very much incentivized to play more hands still the river where he gives away all the information right the more Mm -hmm. information the higher ev decision but obviously the solver doesn't, doesn't give away any information it doesn't make a leak so then obviously getting to that street, it's not worth a lot in the solver world. But in right. practice, it can be worth quite a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, but despite that, you did at some point, uh, you know, you were doing very well. You said never look back, but there was a little a, li- a, a, a little, little hiccup. Hop, a, a little hiccup along the road where, where at some point, because you know, we usually ask the people like what you know, what was like a rock bottom moment, blah blah blah. And at some point, like you just wrote, there was like, oh, and I was out of 5 million makeup. And I was like, what? I, I, I didn't read that anywhere, like rock bottom moment. So at some point you were down 5 million, which for pre-podcast you said like, it's only, you know, 40, 40 buy-ins or something. How did you experience that moment? I mean, we already talked, you know, you touched on this perseverance before with baseball, uh, going broke 10 years in your career. You talked about focusing a lot on controllable various variables. Uh, process-oriented thinking, try to be the best self, yada, 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 all this kind of stuff. Were these, how did you stay positive or at least have a positive outlook when you were down 5 million? Like a lot of people would have quit and never saw the upside of it, but you decided to like, eh, I'll continue. I mean, uh, look, it it was hard. I don't want to, I don't want to reduce it to uh, just a shoulder shrug and uh, I just, you know, packed my lunch pail every day and and got on with it. Uh, It was definitely trying. It was mentally brutal. It was emotionally brutal. But uh, all those key points that you kind of uh, highlighted where I had some sort of struggle and had the opportunity to quit. um, It's easy to say that like, I, it was me that chose not to and it was me that powered through and persevered and everything else. But the truth of the matter is, if you look at each and every one of those situations, yeah, I may have done the work and I may have made the choice to not quit, but it was all fueled by having like just an incredible support system along the way. Uh, and that was probably never more true than in this particular instance of being on the 5 million downswing. Because the fact of the matter is, no matter what I wanted to do, no matter what my desire was or my belief that my win rate was uh, or my ability to recoup, none of that matters if nobody will financially back me, Right. So in this particular instance, the fact that my backing crew was willing to tough it out and say like, okay, we, we think that you're still winning. And the fact that you're losing this much 
just means that you have more invites. Um, get your shit together and get after it, right? Like that was all the encouragement that I needed. And, you know, it wasn't like a light switch just went off and I was like, okay, these guys, like I was sweating it. Every, every million I lost, I was like, they're, they're cutting me. Like today's the day that they cut me for sure. And I don't know where that, that it, it may have literally been the last buy and I might've been on my last buy and when I turned things around, I'll never know. Right. Um, it sure as hell felt like it. That that's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it was tough. I lost like 24 out of 26 sessions. And the thing with that game is, uh, I didn't get the best seats. So there were plenty of games that I just like wasn't getting invited to. I was probably playing on average like twice a week. So to lose 24 of 26 sessions and go on a $5 million downswing, that's over the course of like seven months. You know, it's like so spread out and you have all this downtime in between to just like lament your situation. Uh, now, what made it a little bit easier is that I had made a bunch of money in the game and wasn't at a very high financial risk, right? So if they had cut me, it's going to be a lot more damaging to like my, I guess, social standing, maybe. Uh, it'll be very damaging to my ego. It'll certainly be damaging to my belief in myself moving forward as a professional poker player. But financially, I'm probably still going to walk away with seven figures, right? And that seems like an okay place to start over, I guess, and, and figure shit out. Um, so I think that there might even have been a part of me that, that was kind of like leaning into that, like, I hope they cut me. Like, I'm ready to just fall flat on my face again and figure out what the next step is because this is brutal. Like, I just don't want this anymore. But uh, luckily or unluckily, I guess, depending on your vantage point, um, life kind of always finds a way of stepping in. Uh, at, at the peak of this downswing, it had been six or seven months uh, or so, and I was playing a World Series event um, that I was actually doing quite well in. I, I think I was like chip leader mid-day two or something like that. And on break, I just get a phone call from my sister and she says, mom OD'd last night. Uh, she's dead. Uh, we're not going to have a funeral for her. I just wanted to let you know kind of thing. I was like, holy shit. Like, that's that's pretty sobering. Um, and I didn't really know how to take it. My mother and I didn't have a super close relationship. But in spite of all her flaws, in spite of all her addiction problems and the fact that she was you know, only half of an adult for the majority of my life. She was also like one of my biggest cheerleaders. And, you know, even though I didn't really respect her lifestyle, uh, she was a very warm individual to me and like very much coddled and uh, created this self-belief, I, I guess I had. If by no other way than like by forcing me to kind of take care of her in her darkest moments, right? Uh, it's, it's very sobering as a 12-year-old to to kind of see your mother passed out in a drug-induced stupor and have to ensure that she gets fed and washed and all this shit. So I grew up very fast in that regard and, and became very mature. And uh, when she passed, I had these like mixed emotions of, do I even care? Of course I care, but like, how much do I care? How impactful is this on me? Uh, it, it, it was a little bit dark. Like I didn't even feel obligated to go home, especially because it was an inconvenience to me in the middle of the world series. And I kind of just tried to play through it, but it was it was very clear that I, I wasn't okay. 
like upstairs. Um, w- literally weeks after that, I get a call from my grandmother telling me that she had just gotten back from her doctor and she's diagnosed with stage four uterine cancer. Uh, now my grandparents were godsends to me. They, they basically raised me. Uh, my grandmother, and my grandfather were like two of the most powerful, most influential people in my life. And, uh, especially after my granddad died, you know, this is probably like 13 years later, my grandmother outlived him. Her and I became insanely close. Like she very much filled the void that he left behind. So that was devastating to me. And I had the exact opposite reaction, right? As soon as I found out, I dropped everything and I just moved home. Uh, didn't tell anybody, didn't even like let JRB know that I was going to be gone. Like eventually, you know, I got text back to him. It was like, listen, I just need some time away with family, yada, yada, yada. But um, yeah, I just like picked up everything, went, went home. She was still in good spirits. Uh, she had just found out about the diagnosis. So uh, they had just stopped chemo and, you know, they gave her uh, a few, like, I think they gave her like six to 10 weeks at the time. Um, and she never asked, she never asked for anything. She never, she never put it on me. She never even asked me to come home. Uh, but it just became very apparent within a few days, like I'm going to be your caregiver uh, while you pass. And uh, I would just remember like having to do everything all over again. Like uh, she very quickly declined and like, wasn't able to use the bathroom, wasn't able to shower. So I basically became a 24 seven nurse, uh, which is not a glamorous position and not one that I would necessarily recommend to anybody, but also one that is so incredibly powerful with a loved one. Like, to learn how to care for somebody in that state, it's it's probably one of the most important things that I've ever done in my entire life. Like nothing has impacted me the way that this did. Uh, and I just remember like riding every emotion imaginable. Um, she ended up making it for like three and a half, four months or so. Uh, and I was studying as best I could, I knew that I was going to be coming back to a big mess that I had to clean up that I'd left behind. And I wanted to be in better position for it. Um, and at the time, uh, Christian and I, uh, my partner at self for why we were like, I was coaching him and, and we were working pretty hard. So he was kind of like forcing me to distract myself a little bit with poker here and there. And I was putting in a lot of hours, a lot of work. Uh, once she finally passed, uh, it really, it felt like a weight was lifted, not in the sense of um, I'm glad she's gone, but more so in the sense of uh, nothing could possibly be as gut-wrenching as this experience. So whatever poker has in store for me when I get back is going to pale by comparison. Like I'm just, I'm just ready for it kind of thing. Uh, came back. Obviously, I had been getting crushed and uh, everybody knew why I was gone. So they welcomed me back with open arms and I just ripped it. I could not lose. I've never been so locked in. I ended up winning like 25 of 27 sessions. So I basically flipped the exact loss rate that I had on its head. And it all culminated with uh, Ozzy, Matt and I playing heads up in a game that I barely know the rules to. We played heads up PLO. Uh, I beat him out of like 1.7 million. Just prior to that, I'd final tabled the super high roller bowl for 1.1 million. Like these are all things that are not my technical skill set, right? Like MTT poker, yeah, I'm competent, but like I'm not elite by any stretch. Play one of the toughest fields out there, final table it for seven figures. Play a 
you know, proclaimed PLO experts uh, in Matt. And granted, he was on he was on tilt. I would have played him heads up in tiddly winks. He was so tilted that night. Uh, he actually played me the next night calm and beat the fuck out of me as he should. But uh, when it was all said and done and the dust settled, I was actually like plus a million. So that 15 month span uh, was like an entire career just like crammed into uh, a year, a year and a half type type time frame. And um, yeah, I guess I didn't put it as like the low moment because truly 2012 was so much worse. That was so much more of a crossroads of, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do with my life if, if this isn't it. Where here I was going to be financially fine. And, uh, you know, I was going through personal stuff with my family, uh, but, you know, that that's just kind of the byproducts of life. You hate to look at uh, losing a loved one and call it the lowest point of your life or anything like that. Yeah, very, very, very deep stuff. It was very interesting to me how you then, after that experience, you obviously it's a terrible experience, but at the same time, also you found it, I guess, a beautiful experience. Can I say it that way? Oh yeah, like it for sure. It, yeah, uh, and how you I would then give up. I would give up every penny I've ever made to relive that three four month period. Like, there's nothing on earth I would have ever traded. Uh, to to be there as her caregiver, I can't explain like how critically important that was. Yeah, that's I guess also why you don't name it a rock bottom moment because it had, right. I guess you know it had two sides to it. And afterwards, you were able to put anything that happens after that in perspective. Like, listen, I went through this. Uh, whatever poker throws at me, I'm ready. So I guess also you know then there's you come back and it's like yeah, it, it, obviously you care, but it's almost like yeah. Just, just throw it at me. It, do, it doesn't matter anymore. And maybe then also, you know, obviously there's some luck involved, but I do also believe in like, yeah, a certain attraction then, a certain mindset that you're in that you that, that you kind of manifest uh, good things happening to you. Uh, you mentioned in that time in between that, you know, you had your buddy that you were studying with. He was trying to distract you a little bit. And you mentioned you studied the best you could. Uh, you put it a ton of work in out of curiosity from a technical perspective, what does one put working in a game where you have to 5x, cannot overbet, some people have to only limp? How does a strategy session look like for, for, for Matt Berkey at that moment? You know, it's very different than modern day online poker players are used to, which are probably going to be the majority yeah. of our listeners. Yeah, honestly, uh, it, it's not that far removed from how I still approach it. The only difference is the tools that we were utilizing. Um, but it was very much broad strokes zoomed out uh theory principle approach right uh and that's still how i study to this day it's it's like at that time we found itself for why and that's why i i named the company what i did like why is so much more critical to me than like what or how i don't care that much about execution i care so much more deeply about what's the purpose behind the decision that we're about to make and that was always the framework that i operated from and that's why uh you know referencing back to that conversation I had at the wedding where I basically say like, look, I go in with a loose framework, but my whole goal, my job is to brain solve each and every decision, treat them each uniquely and try to extract as much value out of every one of them that I possibly can. And, you know, for him, he's a volume guy who, who grew up in a very, very tech. He, he rose to the ranks and got out of poker all within like a 36 month window. It's like, Jesus Christ. Like that's, <laughs> that's that's barely a heartbeat as far as like i'm concerned like that that's a swing for me it's 36 months so um it, it was never technical it was very much just like 
general and conceptualizing like okay in general uh we have three player types and it's going to be like loose aggressive loose passive and then tight passive how do we approach each of these situations like what does my three bet range look like versus one as compared to the other so i'll give you for instance um and this is this will hopefully paint a good picture because this has nothing to do with PO solver or or anything of those nature like the strategy that i developed when andrew robo was in the game was that i would never three bet him just never i played zero three bet percentage against him because i knew he was a better pre-flop player than me but i felt like if i utilized position and whatever deep stack skill edge i had uh with regard to flops turns of rivers specifically rivers it would work out in my benefit and in so many ways it did right in so many ways i got to play Bigger single raise pots than ever should have been played because I show up with hands of value that shouldn't exist, like aces, uh, ace king. And then secondarily, I would just pick up so much free money when the squeezes would come through or uh, the overcalls would come through with like trashy hands that would just make inferior single pairs and whatnot. Uh, I'm only I'm only saying that because it's a demonstration of how many different ways there are to derive EV in uh in an environment that doesn't play by the rules. Of course, game theory is pertinent to our study now when we're looking at these isolated scenarios of position A versus position B in a heads-up single-raise pot, position A versus position B in a heads-up three-bet pot, right? We're, we're abstracting the game down to solvable nodes that allow us to kind of piece the puzzle together and come up with a, a relatively... Um, general complex ish strategy right we were kind of doing the opposite back then we were we were generalizing the game in a way that allowed us to have headlights on a dark road if you will right like we 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 didn't have answers we had zero answers but we felt like we had enough of a head start because we were operating with a light where the other person was in the dark and that was kind of just enough yeah, and that strategy actually that you talk with actually is still something that I personally apply uh, today when you're sitting at a, I don't know, eight max table, six max table, whatever, or at least, you know, when there's multiple players, your money doesn't come from Andrew Robo in that game, right? So right. playing a strategy that uh, allows you to play more hands versus the players that are not Andrew Robo is probably heavily incentivized. A lot of hands yeah. would perform better as flats than three bets because you don't want to isolate yourself against Andrew Robo. That's not right. the idea of this game, right? Uh, there's one guy who's going to four bet hands that are not kings and aces and it's him so why deal with that problem exactly so and i think you initially uh mentioned that as well that there was there's a lot of benefits of growing up in that age i don't actually know when you think i started poker i think you labeled me more as like a new school player but actually play i also already played poker for 12 years so i already started pre pre solver age as well and i definitely think there are some benefits what do you think are then those benefits that you mentioned, I think it was in the beginning of the podcast that you touched on. That new yeah. school players, they they ignore. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, maybe none for online, to be quite honest. Uh, I think you could probably speak to it more than me. Uh, I, I didn't realize you had been in the game that long, but um, you having the, the uh, context of what it was like playing online pre-Black Friday, or, or sorry, pre-Solver, maybe you can, you can address that a little bit better. But when it comes to live, it's the social element. Uh, it's so rare that I see a very well-studied online player 
uh come into the live realm and just assimilate to the environment well uh they stick out like a sore thumb it's very very clear that they're studied and what they often do is put uh the weakest players who are losing the most on edge um they either scare them away altogether or they they position them in a way where uh they just default to risk aversion right and the last thing you want to do is take a fun player and make him go back into his risk averse shell um but for the online player that's that's kind of like their happy place right uh you you just want people who are going to passively put money in that you can collect and then uh you want to be able to redline people to death um the irony is that like redlining to death it definitely still exists live but not it it doesn't look the same you know it it, it doesn't look like this i'm going to start with a flop over bet on ace king 5 and if this guy gives me any sort of like uh, problems throughout, or well, I have a candidate that can just run it. it. It doesn't really play out that way, right? It's it's more so, uh, it, it's a little bit more subtle than that. It's just stealing every single pot that's not being fought for um, and doing so in creative ways. Not, not to say that you can't do it in a straight game theory, theoretical way, but it's just a little bit tougher because everybody gets conditioned to the repetition. Right. If you're just constantly quarter pot, three quarter pot, three quarter pot, three quarter pot, quarter pot, three quarter pot, they're going to get accustomed to knowing that when they peel with a bad hand, they're going to face the quarter pot on the turn. So they're going to stop peeling with hands that can't make something by the turn. They're going to stop peeling with that just three to a straight, three to a flush, and they're going to start check raising it instead. Right. Even the worst players in the game will fall accidentally into that, into that deviation. And it happens to be a semi correct one. You know, um, but instead, like if you just you hit them with some curveballs here and there, right? Like instead of beating them to death with like quarter pot, three quarter pot, quarter pot, three quarter pot, you just start throwing in like top pair checkbacks every once in a while. You start throwing in like flop over bets on board textures where like you probably weren't going to face enough defense anyway. So like it's a free roll to you, like king three deuce and you happen to have a backdoor hand like seven six like whatever just pot and a quarter and then table it something along those lines like very subtle annoying little things that just like kind of work their way into the psyche of players who are less studied than you uh that stuff's not intimidating to rex that's engaging to them they want to engage in the banter they want to fight they want to find a foe and they want it to be a friendly foe who they feel like is on an even playing field with them as far as the tools they're operating with. When you come in with that precision, like you're a surgeon just ready to chop them up, it makes me uneasy. And I know what you're doing. You know, it's like, I'm seeing the whole thing unfold and I'm just like, ah, oh, like I'm shuddering at the fact of knowing that like the 200% coming in on the next street. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is, this is going to get ugly fast. And, and what happens is the game flow just dies. Because you're not playing that many hands. I shouldn't say you, like projecting out of you, mm -hmm. but uh, that, that person isn't playing that many hands. But the second they enter one, it's just like the air sucked out of the room. You know, it's like, fuck me, man. We're going to play stockfish right now. Like, come on, guy. Give me a break. Just bet half pot one time for old time's sake. <laughs> it's funny how you, uh, I, I heard again, like the exploitive versus like a bit more GTO mindset comeback where you said you tried to 
if people are not interested in the pot, aka you know they showed weakness, that's when you attack. Whereas mm -hmm. I think you mentioned like the overbet on the Ace King X, that's more aggression driven by the fact that you have a certain range advantage, uh, and it's very focused on your range again. Whereas the exploitive yeah. player is way more focused on what are their ranges, and as soon as you see weakness, that's when you attack. Right? I yeah. thought it was an interesting yeah. point uh, that there we saw the difference in terms of GTO approach or more exploitive approach. So the tip for live players who come to play online, you know, we we know for online players who come to play live, we want the games to be good. We want the games to last long. Uh, main tip is don't. Yeah, what what's kind of the main tip? It's like I, we I got. Just... I heard I have to overbet seven six on king three deuce. You know, my my brain no no you. <laughs> No, you don't. You don't. You don't have to do anything. But like, yeah, just do things that uh, you know may feel like you're giving a little bit up. Like, it's give something okay. back. Even yeah, so, it's... even even to the wrecks. Like, obviously, I we had uh, we had a podcast with uh, Joe Viral. I don't know if you know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gilbert, yep. and yep. he and he said the biggest mistake is that they think in the micro, the online players, they think about this is what you said, right? They think in a certain note, they want to play that note optimal, but they don't mm -hmm. look at it in the long term. So you have to right. look at it in the macro. You are there to entertain the recreational player. That's your main purpose. They could have went to the cinema. They could have went to dinner. No, they decided to show up at the poker table and it's your job to entertain them. So don't go sit there with your GTO strategy and tank, okay? They are there to have fun and you, you are the entertainer. You have to make sure that they have fun. Yeah. That's that's very good advice. And it's tricky. It's not as simple as just like play a hand a certain way or, you know, act a certain way or be affable or whatever. Like, of course, all of those things come into it. But the biggest struggle, I think, is that people who spend the majority of their time staring at a computer screen, getting very good at a game, just aren't that socially uh, adaptable. And they miss a lot of cues that would greatly benefit them. You know, it, to some degree, you almost want to treat it like you're on a date like a first date of sorts. And, uh, you know, your goal is not to, to get your, your goal is not, yeah, it's not necessarily <laughs> to sleep with them, but it's more importantly to make sure that they don't storm off. Okay. Right. Like you, you want to, yeah, you, you want to go in for the kill. You want to, you want to build a yeah. long-term relationship where, you know, you, yeah, you want to work benefit. this up to a good night kiss. Like, uh, and, and you, you'll have some pitfalls along the way where you're sweating it. You're like, I don't know if this is going my way right now. You know, like that's a, that's a good witty banter back and forth kind of, kind of exchange. Right. Like, but if you just go in there with all the confidence of the world, like I'm bagging this chick tonight, you know, that kind of thing, <laughs> then, uh, they feel that like they, they, re they recognize that you see them as a mark and, and nobody so wants it, to feel that way. Like obviously for the recreational players, I understand and I agree, but even towards the other regs, I mean, the game will, will run regardless. Right, it's, it's it's the shit regs that keep the game alive. Uh, okay, so the shit regs. That's important to, to remember. Okay, so if with the shit regs, we should try to go in for the kiss, but not but not try to get yeah. laid. Yeah, yeah, great, great yeah. advice. <laughs> <laughs> you you did also mention that you know at a later at a later point in your career, obviously you were trying to get more studied, and you already mentioned like the conflict between the experience that you have as a player and then the study voice coming in like, yeah, but you know, three, I think you said three quarters, but he, he, he gives a different meaning to that than what a solver does. Uh, mm -hmm. I assume that being a bit more studied or studying the game uh, with, for example, solvers did benefit you. What was like the main aha moment for you when you dived a bit more into theory, if there was, or I think, I think you also mentioned 
maybe also because you're close to Nick, maybe also with studying data. So maybe both with data and solvers, what were like some aha moments for you when you started to study in that way? I think, I don't know if it's one singular aha moment, but I think that um, it, it was the ability to contextualize a lot of the theoretical principles and align it with math. Um, so, you know, it's easy to understand uh, what equity threshold is when it comes to like the pot odds model, right? It's like, okay, well, we need a certain amount of equity, but we throw that around so loosely as if we just understand how much equity a hand has. And uh, the truth of the matter is up until, you know, maybe six or seven years ago, the only way we had any concept of what amount of equity a hand had was if it was a drawing hand, you know, we could estimate uh, how often we were going to make our flush if we had the ace high flush draw, that type of thing. Um, but beyond that, we, we didn't really understand. And that was very apparent in the way that we continued versus C-bets. It was also very apparent in the way that we C-bet. Uh, we devalued drastically pairs that were not top pair. Uh, we devalued drastically um, draws to the nuts that had other hidden value like overcards. Um, we devalued drastically backdoor cards that you know could potentially be utilized in bluff lines. So I think for me, the the big the big discovery was um, kind of validating actions that I was taking by being demonstrated the math of why it worked. Right. So like me being able to look at big bet lines and recognizing that. Um, they're supposed to call with like bottom pair in this scenario because of, you know, blockers and removal and all these other things. And like, what the fuck can I even have type of stuff? Uh, and realizing like, oh, they're folding top pair versus this bet. Like hmm. we're, we're out here killing it. Right. Cause it's like, I don't need to actually see the math behind that to know how much money I'm making. I just know that if like they're supposed to be mostly calling with bottom pair in a spot that I think they're mostly folding top pair, we've just hit the jackpot. And it allowed me to retroactively look back and say like, okay, this is how we made money for 10 years, for 15 years, whatever the case may be. And this is how it's going to trend and change. People are not going to continue to fold bottom pair. They're not going to get, they're definitely not going to continue to fold top pair, right? So the overfolding era is coming to a close. And what's the next adjustment that we can anticipate? And, you know, for a while it was, let's study into what happens when people overcorrect and, you know, float too widely um, versus small bets. And when I say too widely, I don't necessarily mean in accordance to MDF, but more so in accordance to uh, the proper strategy as far as like, how are they going to balance themselves on the turn when they just never fold to a C bet type of stuff? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that served me really well. So like, I'm always just trying to apply the scientific method when it comes to my solver work. I don't really get too granular because I'm not playing online. So I don't need to play small blind versus big blind perfectly, right? Mm -hmm. I just need to have a rough understanding of what the ranges are and uh, how to construct whenever I move into the certain board textures. What I'm much more concerned about is just like taking a hypothesis and saying like, okay, if I think the environment is trending this way, because it's very much monkey see monkey do, then what in theory land would be the natural adjustment to this? And how can we node lock to kind of test? 
this sounds very similar to uh, a podcast that we did with Yuri Pelik, who didn't necessarily lear- learn his strategy through the solve, but it's more when he started to study solve, he was like, hey, people don't do this. How can right. I ma- ex- exploit even further? So basically, mm. you know, uh, he became a better exploitive player because of it. Also because of his mindset is that everyone is a fish, so everyone should be treated from an exploitive lens. That was one. Uh, when and if so, no, if so and when did then data come in? I know you're you're friends with Nick, who's the, I guess, labeled data guy. Uh, yeah. And how does that translate to the live scene? Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I won't put the cart in front of the horse. Uh, Nick is one of my favorite people that i've come across in if for no other way than the way that i think we challenge one another um so we first met pretty randomly uh he was in vegas and i was reading like his blog on run at once and this must have been like 2016 it was it was right as the polkian movement so to speak of uh really selling gto to the to the marketplace was was coming to be and it all just felt so bullshitty to me uh, and even now, like looking back on it, the idea of of like us putting this label to something that's been in existence since von von Neumann, right? Like game theory is just a thing. It's a it's a study of games within the mathematical construct, and we somehow tried to make it this cool, edgy thing with this label of GTO, right? Like, are you even GTO, bro? Like, how the fuck did we end up down this path? But because of uh, Joe Ingram, I think, right? Yeah, him. Got Doug, I mean, GTO. Yeah, they marketed well, um, but it was bullshit because like what what we were selling back then was nonsense, and we all know that now with hindsight. And you know the things that we're studying now are getting us a little bit closer, but in five years they're going to look like bullshit too. And we're going to laugh at how terrible we were in 2022. Um, but I just remember Nick like kind of speaking out against that movement and coming from a place of like, look, I swallowed the red pill. I dove as deep into theoretical study as you can possibly go. I did all the solver work and I'm here to tell you that it's, it's not the way. And I was just like, okay, this is interesting to me because I also feel like in current game state of 2016, it's not the way, um, but I haven't done all this work. So I'd like to, I'd like to talk to this guy. So we started chatting. Uh, we ended up meeting up in Vegas and hanging out quite a bit and our, our like global thoughts or our general thoughts really aligned. Like we truly seem to see strategy very, very, very similarly from a broad perspective. The difference was he was very calibrated in the micro for better or for worse. And on top of that, he had just gotten into doing a ton of data study where he was pulling MDA uh, or, or he was doing MDA on like a lot of these pools online. And, uh, I was all ears because all of that calibration was then being basically distilled down into generalizations, right? Against the fish, you do X. Against the reg, you do Y. And, you know, poker becomes kind of easy again. It's like, okay, that's fascinating. And we would talk about it in very general terms. And I could find ways that it was applicable to live. As he got deeper into the MDA and detox really kind of started to blow up, uh, and now, you know, theoretical study was kind of getting a little bit more precise and I was getting my feet wet and starting to learn a lot more. Um, he would tell me a lot of the discoveries that they were making and they all made perfect sense to me, but where we would lose each other was the qualifications. 
because he was very certain as someone who played very little live at the time that all of his mass data analysis would translate one-to-one from live to online. And I remember we made a trip to Big Bear where we were there for like a week. And this argument lasted pretty much the entire week where I was just like hell-bent on a fish online is not the same as a fish live. Like it's not even remotely close. The same way that stakes don't translate through the two realms. Like 1020 online is like the equivalent of 100, 200 live, you know? And what you're labeling as a fish like, cause he would basically be like, yeah, fish online, like over bluff river by 23% or something like that. And I'm just like, well, not my fucking game, buddy. Like never <laughs> is that riverbed a bluff. Like they just, they literally never bluff. Like it's quite the opposite. Uh, and we were just like fighting tooth or nail. And I think it was just kind of a lack of, or a, a miscommunication because we were using the same general terms to describe something wildly different. Uh, and you know, if you look at like the HUD stats around how each of the the profiles are labeled and you try to guess what the HUD stats are in the live realm, you'd very quickly recognize that like what he has labeled as a fish online is probably like a weak regular in a live environment. Like a guy that you would expect to be winning like, I don't know, one or two, maybe three or four big blinds per hour, somewhere between like small winner and small loser, right? And it's like, this is your fish online. This is the guy who's probably like losing three or four big blinds per hundred. And I'm like, oh man, let me introduce you to a real fish. Cause like, not, not to throw him under the bus, but like we'd be having this argument. I'd be like, I would just constantly bring it back. I'd be like, you think Bob Bright's betting river there with, with, with the nothing. You think like he's showing up there with the absolute nothing way too often. Like no fucking chance, man. It's the nuts every single time because he didn't show up there to get his brains kicked in with a bluff. Like he showed up there to get paid with a good hand. And that's, that's the mindset of live recreationals. You know, they don't understand the game from a, a strategy standpoint. They understand it from a risk standpoint. And we hate asymmetrical risk. We just hate it as human beings. Like it feels so unnatural. Like that's why poker players are so unique. I know so many people who were just like all in on the Floyd May- Mayweather fight three or four years ago saying it was the biggest steal of EV they've ever had. They were laying like eight to one, like massive, massive price, right? Like laying 8,000 to win 1,000. But all of them are just like, this is the freest money we've ever earned, right? That asymmetrical risk makes people very fucking uncomfortable. The election uh, a few years ago, same thing. Everybody's piling in like freest money in the world. Well, you know, there were points where, you were laying a hefty price going one way or the other, like to bet against Trump. Uh, but you know, that's, that's the difference. That's why they're killers because it doesn't matter if the risk is asymmetrical. All that matters is the EV surrounding it. Recreationals don't think that way, man. Like uh, I was just reading a book. Um, it was about Danny Kahneman and his partner, Amos, uh, that, that they grew up, uh, I, I can't recall the name of the book, but Michael Lewis wrote it. But anyway, they were talking about um, one of the the projects that they had studied throughout was uh, measuring risk. And the proposition they would give to a controlled group was, um, if we flip the coin uh, and you choose correctly, I'll give you $100. But uh, if you choose incorrectly, you give me $100. So it's a zero EV proposition. They're like, no, absolutely not. Like almost everybody across the board said no. And they said, okay, um, if I flip a coin and I give you 
$200 if you guess correctly, but you give me $100 if you guess incorrectly, uh, would you take that proposition? And the number only shifted slightly. It was like 10% more people would take the proposition. Getting laid two to one on a coin flip, right? Wow. Uh, and the greater the, the greater the monetary risk, the bigger the odds they wanted to see. So if they just changed the number from 100 to 1,000, that number would drop again, right? Because we're just so risk averse as people. All we can think about internally is like the worst case scenario. Uh, conversely, they ran another study where uh, they said, um, uh, I want to make sure I get the details of this right. But basically, they offered two zero EV propositions. One was, um, oh, it was... Uh, it, it was something to the effect of like, uh, I'll give you a hundred dollars right now, or we could flip a coin. And if you guess correctly, you get $200, right? So it's a, it's a hundred, hundred dollar EV proposition. Almost everybody just took the hundred bucks, the guaranteed hundred bucks when they inversed it and said, you can pay me a hundred dollars to not flip this coin, or, uh, we can flip this coin. And if you guess correctly, you owe me nothing. If you guess incorrectly, you owe me 200. Almost everybody flipped the coin. So we have this weird relationship with risk where we want to latch on to what we have so desperately. We want to protect what we have so desperately that uh, we'll do anything to not, to not put it uh, in harm's way. But the second that it's taken away from us anyway, we are super risky. We'll do anything to get it back, right? So like if you're stuck, for example. Correct. Perfect, perfect example. It's like, think of the mindset. The, the, the difference between how fast you want to rack up whenever you're winning, especially like a big number, like uh, an amount that feels like it's too much almost, right? Like, oh man, I'm up eight buy-ins in three hours. I'm getting the fuck out of here. Like, what am I going to do? Win 10? This is crazy. I'm gone, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But you're stuck, or you're stuck eight buy-ins and all of a sudden you have your car keys on the table, your bankroll. Yeah, it's like, like fuck it. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm like, losing anyway, so. Right, what am I going to do, lose 20? I'm getting even tonight, baby, one way or another. Like, you don't even think about the fact that it's hard to win eight binds back. You're just like, I'm, I'm here. Like, I'm obviously buried because somebody in this game stinks and it's not me. As opposed to when you're winning, you know, you're like, oh, I'm winning because I'm like running really hot or I'm getting lucky. Like, you don't think to yourself, like, this is the best game I've ever played in type of stuff. So, um, yeah, we have this like very, very strange relationship with risk. And, uh, that was like the big thing that I struggled to communicate with Nick. Um, because that's a huge separator between online and live, not just the tier system of like, you know, the worst player online is still better than 30% of the, the, the players live, but secondary to that, the anonymity of it all, right? Like, the fact that they just get to click buttons and if they lose, like their account reloads or they go broke and they disappear and nobody, ever, you know, whatever, Joe star five, five, five disappeared. Big deal. Who gives a shit, right? When you're there and you have to physically hand the cash over after running a bluff that failed, that you had to table and show to everybody around so that they could point and laugh. And now you have to pick up and put your hands in your pocket and slink off knowing that you're going to see these people again tomorrow. That'll stop a man from from putting his money in bad very quickly. Yeah, so there's an extra... It's a bit harder to bluff in the live environment because of all these things that come around it. But I guess in terms of folding, I'm pretty sure that Nick agrees, right? The people are risk averse yeah. and therefore they tend to overfold. 
that's kind yes. of I think also part of his philosophy. And yeah, I think it yeah. also really uh I think it's harder if you play live because you're actually facing a person, right? It's harder to see a person as a profile or online, you know, you just label people and you have multiple mm -hmm. tables, so you just spot like ah oh, rack, fish, blah blah blah. Whereas, like you said, live you play against Joe, not Joe Star five 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 five, right? Right. So there's it's it's a bit different. I think it's a bit harder to think of him as just another guy in the alias. Yes. Right? Yeah. Also, like people have moods, you know? Yeah, but, you... but like it, it, exactly, right? but you can actually see the moods. Online Correct. people also have moods. Correct. Also, you know, they also have moods. So in the long term, the data, you know, is is correct. It also takes the moods in consideration, but mm -hmm. it's a bit less obvious when they're in that mood. Right. Well, yeah, it's it's of course over the 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 grander scope of it, the data takes all that into consideration. But imagine if you could just hone in on those little yeah. clusters where you know that they're in a certain mood, right? Imagine how skewed that data actually looks in those uh, zoomed in clusters. For sure. But then it comes back to indeed again your approach of more exploitable because you have right. more information and you have more time to take that information in consideration. Whereas online, if you play multiple tables and you don't have that information, defaulting to a data strategy is probably mm -hmm. better than to guess, so to speak, right? Honestly, uh, it, it it almost feels unfair. Um, I go back and forth to this. I've never really taken a hard stance. Uh, Nick and I have had this debate a few times, but uh, I'm very much wishy-washy on what I think the ethics of even... Uh, doing mass data analysis are uh and i don't ever take issue with nick because it's like it's out there right like he, you'd be a fool not like you're basically lazy if you're not doing it um but i i remember like the the one day that i really paused for concern where i was just like what the fuck is happening and it mm -hmm. made me realize like this is just happening at scale uh was when upswing put out a course called like beat otb red baron or something like that yeah and, la and later also with linus right yeah and it's just like, I I understand these hands are out there and people are already doing this analysis, but it it immediately took me back to the Hastings Townsend Isildur mm -hmm. uh, situation where like Isildur basically just got absolutely demolished, and he was an enigma. Like he was somebody that was not being figured out unless you paid the cost to put in the hands versus him. You know, suddenly like he gets data mined and they're able to just curate a perfect strategy or at least uh, a more optimal one than people are able to do on the fly. And he's shit out of luck and fresh out of a few million. Yeah, I think I think there's a difference between analyzing a pool and Agreed. analyzing a specific player. I think, yeah. obviously, from a commercial perspective, I understand it. But let's say I would... I mean, actually, I have a coaching company. But I would never, like, even though I know it's good for commercial, I'm not going to put Linus's game out there or OTP's right. game out there. I think that's very much not done. I even heard that, uh, I think it was the Spanish guy, right? Educa. Oh yeah, it was the Educa course in which they analyzed OTB. And they mm -hmm. both, they were actually both living in London and Educa called OTB like a day before it would launch. Like, hey, let, let's meet up. And he said, oh, uh, tomorrow our course is going to launch an upswing in which I analyze your complete game. That's wild. It's just Like a day before. Yeah. Like yeah, ju I mean, just a like, heads up. I know this is not okay, but you know I did it right. anyway. Right, right, and it's like it, it's so tough for me to even like conceptually understand because it's not opinion anymore, right? Like if I did that in 2012, or Phil Gelfond did that whenever he started Run It Once, like okay, so you're gonna hear Phil's opinion on one of his opponents, and he's gonna use some examples, and like that's that's powerful, right? There's knowledge there for sure, but 
it's so insignificant grand scheme of things. You're going to just show me a hundred thousand hands that Linus played and we're going to sort for the most interesting ones and, you know, lines that uh, are pretty obscure and shit like that. It's like, Jesus, like what chance does he have? I mean, like he has to adapt literally faster than every single other person who's playing. That's, that's so shitty. Can't have nice things. I, I think I think that's kind of where where the line should be drawn, and I know mm-hmm. a player. It's also like in in my in my opinion or how I always approach everything in poker. This I don't know if this is good or bad, but I never really stopped and think about what I think of something ethically. It's more that as long as it's allowed and people use it to gain an edge. I'm sort of mm-hmm. forced to use it anyway to get an edge, yeah. whatever I think of it. Like when seeding scripts were hot, yeah, people would ask me for my opinion. And, and I, I honestly, I said, listen, I, I didn't even stop to think about my opinion. Everyone was using it. I couldn't get into games anymore. So my job was to get a faster script than the rest. Yeah. You know, it when they later banned it, you know, I have to say, when you get used to playing online with scripts, you don't want to go back. But then when they ban it, you know, at least no one had a script anymore. Right. Then it, then it's fine with me as well, right? As long as the playing field is level, I think uh, that's what is most important. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a, 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 a very smart way to go about it. It keeps you sane. Uh, I I tend not to, but I also don't play online. So I don't, I don't like it. I don't have to deal with these moral quandaries all that often, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I true. do it more so from the outside looking in, so I get to be a lot more objective about it. Yeah, and it's, it's also, I mean, obviously when you use it yourself and get the benefits, like I said, with seeding scripts, even even if you don't like it, like I said, it's so nice. I really, mm-hmm. I really miss seeding scripts, to be honest. It's sure. not good for, it's not for the game, but from my personal experience, the, the playing experience. Yeah. I mean, imagine, you know, you, you were just taking a break and then it's suddenly you're... And it's like you were sitting next to a whale. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. From that perspective, like obviously, like when I hear this, there's immediately two sides of it. The, yeah. the professional that thinks in terms of optimization thinks, wow, this is awesome. But obviously, mm-hmm. I also think like, okay, this is clearly not good for the game. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, there's, there's clearly two sides of it. In, in terms of close of data, I think, uh, for example, Nick, when Nick said, oh, they're bluffing 23% here, I think that's a bit too global, right? And then you nailed into a specific profile. Do you think he bluffs or is it this specific line? Uh, then what they, what often is used as well, then they go very specific with data. They say, oh, a bad, bad, bad in this formation on this texture is bluffed 28%. And you try yep. to memorize all the data. I'm not a big fan of that approach either. I usually, what I do with data is I try to take a bit more of a global view and try to understand like, okay, why does a certain leak occur? What's kind of the psychology behind it? And usually if you put the data next to a solver, usually you can kind of see why they screw up theory and why a leak occurs. And I think these concepts like errors in range construction, for example, that lead to an overblast spot, underblast spot, overfold spot, underfold spot. If you then consult the solver and put it next to the data, usually you can understand that. And if you take that knowledge live, it will probably still remain. The exact percentage might be different, but that's not what I personally focus on. I just focus on, okay, this spot is likely to be overbluffed or likely to be underbluffed. And then from there, you know, if you play live, indeed, there's maybe a bit more specific profiles that you can take in consideration. Yeah. Um, Adam, you ever uh, played live poker? I mean, heads up, hyper sitting goes, not really a live format. The casino is not really going to make a lot of money on that. No, I was kind of handcuffed in two variables. One, playing 25 big blinds, heads of poker. Two, living in Bali, Asia with no casino, illegal gambling. So 
not much live experience, so to speak. Um, so yeah, can't really comment on anything live. But yeah, I think it's very interesting what you guys were saying, like where to draw that kind of ethical line. It does seem like when kind of programs are coming out on one individual, it just seems quite unfair that everybody has an edge on that one person. It seems like most people can agree that that's kind of not the right practice. If it's kind of universe, like a hood, for example, everyone can use a hood. Obviously, professionals use them more than re uh, recreationals. At the same time, everyone has the option to get that kind of advantage. So yeah, it's an interesting kind of moral dilemma that somebody's face. And yeah, I was the same as you, Rene. Like sometimes, like you, you just went with the flow. Like I had sitting scripts, we, we just shocky, uh, shocky straight there. I actually moved from Bali to uh, Portugal to get a fast internet connection because my seating script wasn't quick enough in Asia. But it was basically do that or don't get games. Like it was kind of black and white. So you just follow along. You don't really think like, should we be doing this? Is this the normal thing? Like, is this the way it was? So yeah, I can can relate to that. Yeah, so I, I remember wanted... like people would even move or hire like remote desktop and put servers next to fucking ISO of men so they would be the closest to the PokerStar server as possible. That suddenly became a way to gain an edge. It had no longer to do with who was the technical player. It was like, are you fast and are you closest to the servers in ISO of men to get to the game? That was That was kind of the criteria of being a very good winner. Very true. Yeah, there was two guys in my game. One was um, living in the Isle of Man, and one was in Belarus. And we basically were all waiting for the same kind of lobby as it, as a kind of fish came through. And basically, the fastest was like fastest uh, connection first. And this guy from Belarus, and this guy from Isle of Man, we're getting like four games. Everyone's one game. So we said, like, "What the hell? What's going on?" Over time, like they kind of standardized like the kind of queuing system, so everyone's got in, in, in line. But yeah, there was some wild times where it's like things was going a bit crazy. And being in the Isle of Man was all of a sudden the kind of Get the, the Jesus seat on the on the whale, so to speak. But um, yeah, for funny times. So yeah, I just want to ask a few questions now. And we're going towards the three-hour mark, which is quite long. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to ask some like reflection questions. You've had a very sure. long career, so I want to go back to uh, what are some of the most important lessons that podcast taught you? So in the last twenty years, is there any important life lessons that you've learned from poker? Um, yes, for sure, is the short answer. Uh, I truly believe. And it's unfortunate that this doesn't scale because I think that the world would be served better if everybody endured some level of competitive poker at some point in their life. Because I truly believe that it's like a one-to-one -one comparison to life itself. And I don't mean necessarily in uh, in like the, the specifics of the detail of the game versus like life being played like a game or anything like that. But I mean more so in the vastness of the variables and how they shake out in accordance to both variance and strategy. Uh, I don't think it's an accident that you see things like Liberatus being utilized as a war games tool now after having been uh, uh, originally designed to be a heads up bot to beat the likes of Polk and others, right? Um, the reason why that conversion happens so, so easily is because the game itself is so, so dynamic in nature, right? There are just so many endless variables that we can't possibly account for uh, that we're often just forced to train ourselves to think probabilistically and deal with the most rational spectrum of outcomes that could potentially occur. And everyone would be better served in life to be able to not only take on that sort of mindset on a day-to-day -day basis, but be actually able to apply it, right? Uh, it's one thing to recognize that probabilities exist and that variants exist and to acknowledge that kind of stuff. It's a whole other 
to be able to identify that um, where we like to impart control, variance is actually the large factor that's that's kind of taking the reins. Mm, yeah, that's a huge one. Like poker trains you to think in probabilities and everyday life, you can't not think in terms of a tree of various options that could play out. And there's no 100% of anything. There's always like a, a waiting. But people who don't play poker haven't had that kind of probability training generally think black or white. It's like, oh, this is going to happen. Oh, that's not going to happen. And then they use confirmation bias to confirm the 100% likelihood of an event where you're like, that was probably variant. So it was a higher waiting. So yeah, I think it's one of those things where poker really, really trains that skill. Like every single day, you're thinking EV in terms of probabilities. Variance just punches you in the face beats you senseless until you get it. And you're like, oh, this is variance. No, no, that's not variance. Oh, this is variance. No, no, that's not variance. You've just got over and over, learn the lessons. And yeah, I think it's a very, yeah, I like, I like that kind of one-to-one -one experience. And also I think in the other, align with that, it lends you to uh, deal with emotions alongside that yeah. because when you don't get your own way or, or probabilities play against you, the amount of turmoil that creates when you're almost losing control and things are going against you, but you're thinking you're trying to do everything right and just releasing that control and well, let's say trying to release the control in all the conflicts that come up emotionally. Like so I have so many conversations with poker players who are still in that kind of transition periods and they're just learning to deal with like the emotional turmoil of being a poker player. And I'm always just telling them, this is the best thing. Like this is like one of the best lessons of life. Like figure it out in the poker context you're going to the rest of your life and everything's going to be a breeze because you've learned in a very volatile, hostile environment how to deal with emotion, how to deal with all the um, insecurities that come with yeah, not knowing what's going to happen in tackling variance. So yeah, really, really good lesson. Next question I want to ask you is about beliefs. For you, you've climbed all the stakes, the highest stakes possible. What do you think are some of the beliefs that you've had to let go of? I always feel like when we're progressing in life, we're having to shed layers of ourselves. And very often we create a ceiling, create like a limit for ourselves and we can't get past it. And very often we can't see it until to like in, in reflection. Is there any kind of beliefs or assumptions that you had about poker or about life that you had to let go of in order to progress further? Yeah, I actually think uh, a couple of them, we, we kicked this podcast off with. Uh, I think the belief that uh, growth within this space is linear and that uh, it, it is a bit of a meritocracy where work in equals uh, success out. Uh, very slowly, but surely, uh, I recognize that those two things are at most partially true. Um, as a matter of fact, the linear growth aspect of this game is probably all but dead. Uh, we see that as the steps through the ranks kind of start to disappear. Um, it's, it's looking a lot more like the daily fantasy sports landscape where the best in the world may be playing everything from a hundred K buy-in all the way down to a one K buy-in, right? Um, we're just forced to chase EV. There just isn't enough money to go around for everybody. There's not enough bottom line. So if you're really good at your craft, you just do things to earn money. So, uh, I've lost the dream, so to speak. Uh, and I, in, in some regards, according to my younger self, I achieved the dream as well, like being able to actually uh, move through the ranks. But the reality is I, I, I didn't even do that linearly. It's not like I went from 1020 to 100, 200 to 200, 400, and then up the ranks, right? It was like one day I'm playing 1020 and the next day I'm playing 300, 600, 1200. It's like, that's not real. That's... <laughs> That's that's hardly a linear progression, you know. That's that's just a a, a leap and uh, a prey that you land amongst the feathers. But um, yeah, that and uh, the, the meritocracy aspect, uh, the the desire to be like the best in the world, all of these things that we uh, 
like to paint with a black and white brush, they don't exist. You know, and they don't mean anything. They're just ego. Uh, it's it's very hard to reduce this game down to a means to an end, where your sole purpose is to be talented enough to earn a living. Um, but that that's in reality what we're doing. You shouldn't really, you know, I don't care what my peers think. I used to care a lot. I, I couldn't care less now. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing. Like as a poker player, we we want the linear pursuit. I think a lot of online players in particular see poker as this kind of just level by level game. Just get good, get the strategy down, get my bankroll in a good place, then next level, beat that game. It's like a computer game, you progress from one level to the next. So my question I want to ask you is, how do you make leaps? Like you made that leap when you had that situation where you got to play in the Ivy's room game. But what allows you to make a leap? Because a leap's always scary, right? Like there's something, there's something safe about taking like a, a little next step. For myself, for example, playing heads up, sitting goes, I spent a lot of time at one buy-in, got a good win rate. And then I shot took the next buy-in just above, just outside my comfort zone. So I could stretch a little bit. To jump two buy-ins would have been like, whoa, whoa, that's, that's a leap. I'm not doing that. Even if someone like put me in that game, I'd be like, I don't know, this is, am I ready for this? But you took a lot of leaps during your career. So um, first of all, what allows someone to take a leap? Like a poker player wants to make progression or an opportunity arises. What what allows you to take those opportunities as they come? Yeah, I, I mean, I think first, it, it really is just the sheer luck of having the opportunity fall your way. Um, and that's why so many of us that are still around are a byproduct of survivorship bias. It's like we were just right place, right time kind of thing. Um, but the actual execution and, and having the faith to do it, it's for me, it was always a, a framework of like, well, what's the alternative, right? Like looking at the downside rather than the downside of passing on the leap rather than the downside of taking the leap and failing. Um, cause to me, nothing would be more discouraging and nothing would drive me out of this space faster than to be complacent. And I feel it now, right? Like getting to a level where you're accustomed to playing high stakes and suddenly like games begin to dry up or you don't have invites or, you know, you just can't really play as often as you would like. That that layer of complacency starts to to kind of come over you where it's just like, what am I, I'm not pursuing anything anymore. There's nothing higher to chase. Uh, I don't want to shift focuses and become like a part of the high roller MTT scene, like that's not my skill set. Everything we've talked about here today, like I'm the antithesis of what it takes to be successful at high roller MTTs. Uh, so it, it becomes very challenging to stay motivated uh, when there is no further pursuit. And it, I think that was always my framework. It was always just a race to um, ensure that the next step that I was taking was creating a, a new floor. Right. It's never about achieving a ceiling. It's just about elevating the floor to the point where you can't fail any longer. I love that. I love the floor and ceiling analogy where we've always got a limit, which is generally the ceiling that we create for ourselves, then the floor that we're kind of stepping on. And we can just keep moving between those kind of boundaries. And very often there's limitations that we create for ourselves, our own self-constructs. And yeah, I found it interesting that you uh you found it less risky to take a risk and fail, like take a leap and fail, rather than not taking a risk. That complacency is more scary for you, which I think is not the common kind of way of thinking. I think most people, to think about taking a risk and failing, like you talked about before, like risk aversion being like a real thing, to think about putting yourself on the line, whether it's financially, whether it's with efforts, whether it's with your time and energy, and then coming up short, 
for a lot of people, that's that's worse than going, oh, I just didn't try. I just didn't quite, I could have done it, but I just didn't put all my, all my time into it. So uh, for you, you've got that kind of growth mindset where you uh, you need to take those leaps. You need to uh, be on to the next thing because if not, you're like, why am I doing this? Why, why If I'm not yeah. growing, not evolving, not finding my next thing to pursue, what is this all about? So for you, it's this pursuit of better, which probably comes from your your baseball days, your pursuit of growth and getting better at what you're doing. And yeah, obviously that's steered you to where, to where you're today. Yeah, I I struggle a lot to uh, relate to people that, that fall into good places. See, uh, Brian, one of my closest friends I was telling you about earlier, um, I remember us having a conversation where uh, you know, I was previously backing him. He went broke through the process. I went broke through the process and like, he fell all the way from playing like 10, 20 down to like $2, $5, something like that. And, uh, he took on a new backer after me to play two five, which is nearly nothing and was doing well. He made like 80,000 in a year. He got to keep half and was so proud of himself. I remember us having a conversation and him saying like, I never want to play bigger than two five again. And I looked at him right in that moment. And I said, your career's over. And he was so upset because like he had just had one of the best years that he could imagine and everything else. So I was just like, that's it, man. Like this is the beginning of the end. And sure enough, like within a couple of years, he was completely, completely out of the game. Um, and, and for me, it's just like, maybe it's cause I've always been a little bit older than my peers. Whenever it comes to this game, like I was 21 when the moneymaker boom came to be. So I wasn't a, I wasn't really a part of that wave right behind me of 16 to 18 year olds that were, you know, stealing their parents' credit card to jump on party poker and become the next Mike McDonald uh, or <laughs> the actual Mike McDonald, I suppose. Uh, so like I, I was always maybe a year or two ahead and I, I could always just like look around and maybe it's also a byproduct of like where I grew up. I knew what it was like to look at deadbeats and townies and guys who never got out. So there was always that bit of fear of, this can't be it. You know, like uh, the idea of not taking the risk and just staying as is, you better be really fucking high up on the totem pole to want to stay as is. Cause like, if you think beating five ten for 200 bucks an hour is the end all be all, like there are jobs that will pay better than that. And that was always my big thing is like, if I'm going to be in this space, I either need to be making more uh, doing what I'm doing than I could make in a traditional career, or I need to be making, uh, more with fewer exchanged hours, right? So, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of like Waco a bit in the sense that like I never really computed hourly, but it was more about annually, right? Like what can I make annually doing what I'm doing? And if I could make a doctor's salary or a doctor's salary and then some, knowing that I only worked 600, 800, 1,000 hours, it's just like, well, I don't know what that computes to and I don't care because like that's the freedom that I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. A few things come there. One's the kind of grow or die mentality. Like there's no plateauing. Like you said to your friend, as soon as you said, I'm going to stay here, you're like, no, no, you're done. You haven't got the passion, enthusiasm, the curiosity to keep going. And you're it was just clear he was scared, right? Yeah. He was just so afraid to go back up that level and then get beat down. And he didn't want to start over again. Like he's like, I'm 32 now. Like I can't start from scratch. And he was right. He couldn't start from scratch. Like he was literally just going to play himself out. Yeah, it's, it's a good it's a good warning sign to see as well. You probably you didn't want to hear it from you at the time, but it was a yeah. good like reflection from you to go look like either you get that curiosity back, you get that kind of risk tolerance back, or 
Poker's got a short shelf life for you. But yeah, I think for you, it's, it seems like you've got that always growing, always going forwards. And you've also got, like, you talk about that kind of fear of things not working out. You've talked about this kind of imposter syndrome, which I think is very interesting about successful people. They've often got a few attributes together. One is like a belief that they can achieve things that other people can't achieve. They've got that generally balanced with a, a massive insecurity that they're not good enough, that they're still, what they've done isn't quite ready yet. And then they yeah. can often delay gratification longer than other people to keep pursuing things through the pain. So you've got, you've got this kind of turmoil going on where people around you think you've got to figure it out, but you're inside like, no, 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 I ain't got this figured out. I need to keep going harder. So it creates this Do kind it, of constant, yeah, constant going. But you're like, when am I going to figure this out? I, I still feel like I'm, I'm still in the kind of process. So yeah, I think it's a, these kind of conflict in paradigms that sometimes are what drives you forwards. Um, yeah, super fascinating to, to hear all that. All right, I know we're going to be going over three hours. Rene, I'm sure you've got some final questions to ask, and then we can let Mark go on his way. No, no, no. I actually have no uh, no further questions. Uh, I think, uh, you know, after the after the little reflection on the uh, spoken career and everything we already have discussed, I mean, obviously, you know, we can continue on this conversation for another couple of hours. I, I'm, I'm sure we can find stuff to talk about. But uh, as you always say, Adam, to be respectful of uh, Berkey's time, I think it's a good moment to wrap it up. Do you have any final things that you would like to share, Matt, before we close it off? Uh, no, I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I, I think I kind of mentioned this to you, but uh, my first exposure to you was when you were pretty, when you were streaming pretty heavily. Mm -hmm. uh, you used to pull up a clip from Poker Out Loud or maybe yeah, a soundbite yeah, yeah. from Poker Out Loud. People were like sending me these little clips uh, from your stream or whatever. And I never knew what to make of it because I, I didn't always see it in the full context of uh, like the actual stream or whatever. I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm getting memed on or not, but I also don't care. Like, I'm just so happy that because I, I thought you were very good. Like the the bit I'd watched, uh, I was like, he's, he's clearly good. He's winning. I was just like, I'm so happy that somebody who's good is even like spending any time on Poker Out Loud to the point where he would even consider memeing. I'm in. I'm a fan. <laughs> it, it was, I think, of that hand that you played against Nick. I think that's where I got all the clips from. And yeah, I think there were... Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it was something with the induction sizing. I used that one yeah. a lot. But he said, this seems to be an induction sizing. Every time when someone <laughs> put, it, they put an induction size, I will play that clip. It seems to be an induction size where I think he thinks I would fall for this with one pair type holdings. Um, so all the clips were like, Selected. I think at some point I had like 50 clips. They were all like made for a certain moment, you know? That's perfect. Uh, I love it. Uh, and then and then I remember it was Nick explaining a hand where he used a lot of words. Uh, and then I would, if I made a call or something and I didn't want to explain myself, I would just play that clip. For the people who are curious <laughs> as to why I made this call, let, let, me, yeah. let me have Nick explain it to you. I love uh, it. Because I'm operating on the assumption that he's very polarized in that spot, which combinatorically narrows his value range a ton and um, could create a bluffing imbalance if he's not very careful. But you were spot on on that read, right? With that hand. Yeah. And uh, what this allows yeah, you to yeah. do is, uh, is, uh, is pull the trigger with the bottom of his range or something like that. I yeah, I mean, was... the, the hand itself, like in hindsight, is such nonsense. But for 2016, it just made so much sense. Like, I remember walking away from that session going like, I hadn't seen anything yet. And I just go to the production crew. I go, man. This idea we had, because that was season one, I was like, this idea is genius. I'm fucking locked in right now. Like, I'm locked in. And now, like, I go back and watch the hands, and it's, like, so cringe. Like, we were just throwing shit against the wall. But, uh, oh, you but know, I mean, really your, was, your read was spot on. You, yeah, you, it was, it was really just, we were just navigating this, the, the psychological dynamic. Nothing else mattered. Yeah.
but hey uh, th thank you uh, uh, for for producing that content that made a lot of good clips people were very happy to listen to it i'm here for it so any any final words besides that no no i'm a big fan of what you guys do uh I, i've i've enjoyed this i it's not often I get to have like long in-depth conversations. I appreciate that you guys kept it uh, less drilling me kind of in more of a, an open conversation. Like uh, it's nice to just sit down with peers and kick it once in a while. Yeah, we exactly, we feel exactly the same way. We like the criteria is always that we want to have a guest on that we're generally interested in talking to. So I think because of that criteria, usually the conversations end up the way this one was. Uh, mm. And that's also why, like, for example, we've been talking for three hours and usually in people's experience and in my experience as well, it's like, oh, wow, it's already been three hours. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, wait, and I pointed out, I'm like, oh, wait, shit, an hour passed by. But that's yeah. just because, you know, uh, we, we, we try to keep it, uh, keep it a nice conversation. So I'm really happy you enjoyed it. And I want to thank you a lot again for coming on. Anytime. All right. I'm going to be repeating myself here, but what a great conversation that was with Mr. Berkey, Adam. What were your main takeaways from this episode? Yeah, great conversation. Really enjoyed it. So many lessons that we can learn from, from that. First one I want to talk about is dealing with adversity. How many obstacles he faced throughout his career. I really love this story about going broke like 10 years into his career. Just picture playing for 10 years and then losing it all. and have to rebuild from that. His ability to uh, deal with adversity, but also uh, he did a lot of introspective work to, to move forward. But yeah, the ability to uh, use setbacks as a learning tool to move forward. I think that's a very, very good life lesson to learn where nothing's final. If you're still in the game, you're still progressing. For him, one of the things he did to handle adversity, he would simplify his life and control certain variables, whether it was his health, it was his exercise. It was things that he could hold on to during adversity. I know for myself, when life's going hectic, I like to control the things I can in my life a lot more to create some sort of anchor to hold on to. So I think that was a a real important one. Next one was taking opportunities. He had many chances to uh, play life safe, but he ended up in Ivy's room playing some super high roller games because he took a leap. He took a leap of faith. Yes, he had people around him. Yes, opportunity kind of made its way to him. But at the same time, he had some balls to take these opportunities when they came and find a way to make it work. And sometimes I think in life, like an opportunity arises and you've got to be brave enough just to go, yep, I'll figure it out. I think that the one for Ivy's game, he, he only had like a 200k roll. He had to figure out how to sell all his action. But he just went, I'm in. Opportunity arises, I'm there. So I think that ability to uh, go into risk and then figure things out later is a huge one. Uh, perspective, his ability to uh, look back on situations and to put everything in context. I think he's done a good job over his career of yeah, basically reflecting on how everything's played out. You also talked about like basically... Uh, looking at the bigger picture of his games, he was like brave enough to go like his own path and do uh, different strategies. I know in the, in the current age, that's harder because solvers kind of guide the way, but he talked about like having a limping strategy when no one else was limping and all the regs were calling him stupid, but he was, he was just crushing the games because he was able to see the bigger picture and he was able to go with the strategy that could, yeah, beat the, beat the regs and yeah, do something unorthodox in order to profit. So uh, I think, yeah, very good at like understanding the kind of big picture. You also talked about being... Uh, Almost, I think it's about being the facilitator of the money, like all the money passing through him in these kind of live games and him being very strategic and like very long-term thinking where he was almost giving money back to the to the regs or to the face or to certain people because he felt so much in control of like long-term. If I continue to make it a good playing experience for everyone else, I'll be the big winner. So I think that's kind of big picture thinking where often if we call the details, trying to maximize EV of every hand, every spot, we can, we can lose track of that. So uh, yeah, and then another one I thought was really interesting is 
him dealing with like the inner kind of dialogue of almost like imposter syndrome, almost feeling like, oh, do I belong here? Am I going to find out? Fears of it all going wrong. I think it's a, a very common feeling that we, as we're trying to achieve things, we arrive somewhere and we go, do I belong here? And there's also a fear of what was this has taken away. I think living with that kind of in the background is, is, is actually fine. It's actually a good thing because it keeps us on our toes, but also a let's just have gratitude for where we are great this could this might not last this might get taken away i'm doing all i can to belong here to have success but i don't know what the future is going to hold there's a lot of uncertainty so uh, i'm just going to accept that and accept that what comes with it so uh, yeah a lot of lessons there such a i'll have to listen back myself to get some more takeaways but power for yourself right now what were the main things that stuck out for you yeah it was uh the, the point that you mentioned about the life game and again looking at it more from a long-term perspective or as uh, Joe Viral talked about, remember from the macro. And this is also the reason why I we try to get people on to play different games or different formats to get perspectives. So both Joe Viral and Matt Berkey mainly play live and they gave a very macro perspective towards approaching strategy. He was even talking about uh, in terms of realizing where your money comes from in those games that is by... Uh, giving action that they like. So he, he was even talking about adjusting strategies, not overbetting because that would scare them away. They don't like that. And it's exactly what you said. He kind of saw himself just as a facilitator where the money flows through. He talked about uh, not three betting at all against Andy Robo because he was just going to play against the other players. His money did not have to come from Andy Robo. Whereas online players, you know, we're way too much focused on the EV of a certain note. Uh, also, actually, and this is, I think, a big mistake that online players often make when copying solvers and GTO, realizing that, I think we gave the example of, he said a lot of the money is made on the river, so if people play their hand quite face up or they have clear mistakes on the river, then obviously, in a solver, or even in preflop sims, this is taking in consideration that on the river, there's no EV because we're playing against a solver, right? Whereas if on the river, suddenly we have huge tells on the player or they're going to play their hands very face up, obviously pre-flop, we can suddenly get away with playing a lot of hands, okay? Because we just have more information and we're going to make better decisions. So you can actually be very flexible with your strategies when information increases. And this is especially true in the live environment. This is also something that he touched on, right? The difference between how you approach strategy in the live environment compared to online. Online, there's a bit more of a need to standardize your decisions because you're often taking playing multiple tables. We talked about the difference between between like this GTO approach and more exploitive approach. He can take a more exploitive approach because he has a lot of experience. There's more information, right? You actually know, he, I think he was giving the example between you're actually playing against Joe, not against Joe Star 555. It's just an online nickname. And you can see when people are stuck, there's a bit more understanding the psychology behind it. Uh, and you had just have more time for your decisions. So you can actually move away from, you know, your standardized lines. All right. And also because there's just more EV on later streets that, you know, betting for protection or betting range in a certain spot is maybe less applicable given the mistakes people make on later streets. So, yeah, I think from both perspectives, from, you know, the mindset, uh, the management side of things, the, the technical side of things, all side of things, I think we, he gave us a lot of great information. So I want to thank him again for coming on and sharing this with us. I want to thank all the listeners again for tuning in. If you made it all the way to the end, this is probably one of our longest episodes that we've ever done. Uh, for me personally, time flew by. Uh, I hope for you as well. So thank you. You're a very dedicated listener. If you're still listening to my voice right now, I'm going to cut it off right here. because It's already been too long. Thanks again for tuning in and see you in the next episode. <laughs>